Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Let's just go willy nilly into this one. Like, as all right, in, go for it. We could just be started already. I got, right I got now. something planned, so it's all yeah. Good. Yes. So. Well, we should say, I guess uh, this is a Patreon episode, special supplemental episode for 007 by Seven. What do we call it? This is the Connery Classics. We'll call this Connery Classics Episode One. There might not Part be an one. Episode Two. Part One. Honestly, yeah. I think the, the Jason Heck experience is as good a name as any. But you guys call it what you want. I called it Jason Connery on my. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's a working actor, so there's no shame there. There's no shame. <laughs> Better there. than Neil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Brick Mason made good. So, um, Jason, do you have your headphone uh, volume down so that you're not bleeding into your microphone? I think I do, but let me just, go just down. Yeah, but yeah, let's go down on sound here. All right, there we go. We took it down to 36. You know, I work with multiples of nine. That's a weird fetish of mine. Sounds really good. But there. So there you hey, go. um, so I have. Uh, I wanted to. Can we have a? Tri- I want to play trivia with that. Oh man, trivia. yeah, what? sure. Warm everybody up. Okay. I'll, I'll lose this trivia. I guarantee it. But what I'm color's the pie piece? You never know. It's actually not that trivia. It has more of a career slant to it. But I think it's just very interesting. Sean Connery has worked with. Uh, only six directors twice. There are only six directors in his grand career that he has m- decided he could work with more than once, or maybe it's the other way around. Right. But do you? Can we name these six directors and the and the well, respective films? Uh, John I'm going to go one at a time. So John, you go first. You name one. Who who who's, who you John, got? John McTiernan. And what are those movies? Uh, Medicine Man and Hunt for October. Okay, Jason. Sidney Lumet uh, with the Hill. Uh, no. Well, uh, uh, no. No, no, no. He got to go. Go ahead. Wait a second. He, he's he's you blew it. He's worked with Sidney Lumet four times. Oh, I oh. thought you meant oh, two or more. Okay, just yeah, two. Yeah, he's the only. Okay, so he's the only director you, that that Connery has worked with more than twice. Okay, is Sidney is Sidney Lumet? What are those four movies? Uh, Anderson tapes. Uh, the Hill. Uh. You're, you're, uh, I'm sorry, I almost yeah, John. You. Yeah, family family. Business. Yeah, and there's one more. Oh God! Uh, it what he didn't. Do, Sidney Lumet didn't do the offense, did he? No. No. Uh-uh. Uh. Has been remade recently. Uh. With Kenneth Branagh. Oh, Murder on the Orient Express. That's right. Oh, on the Orient yeah, when he, when he when he was doing so, ensemble stuff in the set. Okay. Four, four times with Lamette, which okay. is pretty amazing, considering oh. that n- there's nobody who's worked with him three times, um, only three times. There's just the two-timers. So John McTiernan's the first two-timer. Jason, who's the next two-timer? Um, how about Terrence Young? Oh, that's true. How about... That's, uh, that's, how about, that's, that's, that's uh, true. Actually, Terrence Young is the three-timer. Sorry, yeah, Terrence Young... I was thinking non-Bond movies. Sorry. This whole podcast was supposed to be a non-Bond movie <laughs> podcast. Oh, my God. Uh, yes. So, over. Terrence Young, he's got a four. He's the four. 
because Terrence Young also worked with him in that movie that's No Time to Die, also called like Dragonfire or something like that. Mm. So Young has worked with with Connery four times. So I guess he he <laughs> you know I and you know I tend to think of Terrence Young and Sidney Lumet in the same breath. Worst trivia <laughs> ever. Okay, uh, so all right, so we got that's this is great. We got four, we got two fours, still no threes. Okay, who's another two? Uh, John Engel said John McTiernan. Jason, can you think of somebody he's worked with twice? I guess we're definitely not going to include Stephen Norrington in there. Um, let's see. So uh, outside Bond, yeah, outside Bond, yeah, outside Bond. So we did Molly McGuire's. No, we did Lamette. Um, uh, oh uh, no, no, didn't do anything else with the palm. Uh, Man, I'm not looking at a film. Who? No, no, you're not supposed to look at a film. I'm not. So uh, show uh, us how brilliant you are. Yeah, well, uh, I was. How brilliant I was. Can we? Can we focus actually, on John Badham? I actually, know John Badham super well. <laughs> what? One of these movies is actually this. One of these twofers is actually kind of a. It's a Bond. One is a Bond, and one is not a Bond. Kirshner. Uh, uh, yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. Kirshner. Um, Who's the other Kirshner? It's called a fine madness. Oh, oh uh, yeah, uh, sixty. What sixty six? He, yeah, he's a. Yeah, he's, he's a, a poet. Uh, uh, poet. Wait, yeah, uh, uh, Shillito, right? Sam it Samson is, or Stanford Shillito? Stephen Shillito, like, yes. is that who wrote? Is that who wrote it? The Saturday Night Sunday Morning guy? Well, I don't know, but yeah, he's like, a, what is he? He's like a oh, poet. Oh, his name is Shillito. Yeah, the character's name oh, is Shillito, okay. and he's like, uh, he's a poet, um, and he can't. He's like locked up on his poem. He has like writer's block. And so, right. and uh, yeah, and he's kind of yeah. That's that's one of those weird movies that that happened in kind of in the midst of Bond stuff, where you wonder what like I get the hill, the hill. He said I want to do some. I mean, it's the same year as Thunderball, and the two movies could not be more different. And I get that, but a fine madness. You wonder like what's behind that? Why did he pick that? Certain ones you just wonder where it comes from. Like the uh, what is it? It's the, arguably a comedy. What was that uh, that was, uh, right. the uh, the movie he did in? Uh, oh shoot! Uh, he was the detective. It was like the period piece, the same year as Goldfinger. Um, oh God! It was like oh, is that the Woman of Straw? Woman of Straw, yes. Which yes. I've never seen, so I was just looking that up, and that's with Basil and Basil Dearden directed, yes. whom whom I like. I like yes. his movies. So yeah, so, we should so probably here, put here's that on the a movie ones. night after. COVID. All right, we should. We'll we'll do that. Okay, so we've got so that's two of these. Oh my god! Six, oh my god, I can't right? Even think of any others right now. Well, okay, so. Uh, so uh, who did? Well, okay, so what? What is? What's the other great Connery movie that gets grouped in with? Wrong is right. Wind with Wind and the Lion and uh, and Robin and Marion. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to think about another Dick Lester. Who directed it, that? Millions. Richard Lester. No, that's oh, Lester. Dick Lester. Yeah, Richard Lester, but he did yeah. another one with he Lester. He did, he did, and it was a, apparently a very unpleasant experience. Well, have I don't know ever, what it have, is. Have at you all. ever seen Cuba? Oh, I have never seen it, but I know the I know the movie. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. So two I don't films think it, with Lester, and I think that ruined their friendship um, because <laughs> it was apparently a very troubled production. Same thing. Okay, happened. so so we've got we've got a couple more. Mm. One of them is a, an original and a sequel. Original and a sequel, uh, directed by a music video director. Wait, music video director. 
who then also went on to make features, including a Resident Evil movie. Oh, my God. You lost me on that one. I don't know anybody who's directed <laughs> well, a Resident yeah, Evil movie. What, what do you think? Anderson, what, who the hell what's, the, what's the first movie you think of where Sean Connery played the old dog to the younger? Oh, uh, uh, Highlander. That's right. Yeah. Oh. Highlander yeah. 1 and 2. Oh, oh sure, sure, sure. So we, okay. we actually count 2 as a, as a movie then. Okay. So we, Okay, so that's Barely. that's 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 Barely. different. I, that, that's what threw me. That's what threw me. Okay, we got one left of the of the double O double O double movies, and uh, late in the career, lateish wow. in the career, late career we got one might say one of the last uh, one of the last king roles, single roles before he started being paired up with either with younger people. So he's an old dog with a young dog in one of these, and he's uh, he's just the old dog leading guy in the other one. So work backwards. So League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Finding Forrester, Entrapment. Uh, <laughs> you're getting you're backing up on it. Just Cause, uh, 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 Rising Sun. Uh, oh, there's oh. only one left. I think that you're missing. Oh shit! Rising Sun's ninety three. It is. He's mentorish a little bit. To... Set in San Francisco. Oh He's God, the Presidio. Um, That's right. Well, hi, oh, Mark, yes, Mark. Outland and the Presidio. Oh, right. Outland. Hey, Jason, do you have any opinions about Outland? <laughs> God, how, how long? Never mind. You, no, long, never mind. How many Patreon people do you want to lose? <laughs> we, we already talked about Outland. Yes, Patreon uh, supporters. How much will you yep. pay to cut this podcast to only four hours on Outland? Yeah, but Daddy. When are you coming home, Daddy? I love you. I love you, Paul, you little pig face shit. Okay. I'm not coming home anytime soon, so long as you're there. I love you, Daddy. So it's funny you were talking about the the Bond films, uh, the ones he was doing during the Bond cycle, like Mm. The Hill, Woman of Straw, Fine Madness, and we cannot forget Marnie, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. Because the great thing about Marnie is no matter how bad you feel about how rapey he is in Thunderball, he's worse in Marnie. So yeah. there's always you always got that, uh, and then between you only live twice and diamonds are forever, he made four movies. They were kind of interesting. So he start, starts with so Shalako, and he's have you guys seen Shalako? Yeah, yeah, and that's sixty eight. That's is that his only western? Shot in Spain. Yeah. I think it is his only western. Yeah, yeah I think so. Is is Raquel Welch in that? And Jim Brown? Or I got everybody and then got what? Confused Molly McGuire's is like sixty nine or seventy. Which I guess was a huge bomber. It was because that movie's like a ten million. That's that's not one of his. I'm doing this because it's different. That was him and Harris, I think, at the height right. of their powers. Absolutely. I actually think it's a good movie. I do too. I, 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 Martin Ritt directed it. I think it's very good, and it just boy. It yeah, didn't, he, didn't his social well. consciousness really got better. I think he hit he hit he hit more pay dirt with Norma Ray, but but. I mean, it's. I don't think it's a bad movie. John Connery was in Norma, right? No, 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 no. Oh, Martin Ray. Been... I'm just kidding. Norma <laughs> would need to. But I like Norma the Molly McGuire's, but it's weird to have two guys because Richard Harris is coming off Camelot, right, in 69, and Connery pretty much box office gold at that point, and it made like, what, one or two or three million bucks on yeah, like a yeah, $10 million dollar budget? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it didn't do much, but I like him in it. I like, Jack, I think, what is it, Jack, Jack Kehoe? Kehoe is his character, Big Big Jack or Big Jim, yeah, yeah, and I and think then, and then Anderson Tapes is in there too, which I think is a terrific. I movie, do too. Even yeah, I like the, it very ga- much. The gay stereotypes are 
a little rough in it these days. It's 71, <laughs> you know. I mean, is, is it any rougher than Wint and Kid? Uh, well, let's say it's not as rough as Freebie and the Bean. Let me get. Let me ask you: Is it as rough as? <laughs> so you, you tell yeah. me what's rougher. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. And yeah. so then, and then, as if to really say goodbye to James Bond, he does the offense. Yeah, which is a quite a which is, palate cleanser, and that right? movie cost like nine hundred grand. That's so it's like he did it for nothing, right? So he asks for one what one and a half million for Diamonds Are Forever, donates it all to the Scottish Educational Trust, and does a movie that costs like nothing. And, and I think I think I think they had a deal where he also got two pictures. I think after I think Diamonds. David, I think David Picker at UA said you can you have two movies, a million dollars each. You can do whatever you want, or something like that. I can't remember how it worked, but but the offense was one of those. But I'm not sure whether whether I'm not sure what the other one was. It couldn't be Anderson because it's Anderson. No, a little that too was big. A, uh, right. Then that was before Diamonds Are Forever was, uh, but it was UA. I don't know. Um, he's, there's something called Ransom in '74, and I don't know anything about that. Really? That yeah, that's the whole so. kind of post Diamonds Are Forever pre Meteor era. So you've got like Manny Would Be King and Wind of the Lion are, are, are they're like both seventy five, right? Right. So seventy five seventy six seventy five seventy six is good for him. Seventy four he makes three movies. Uh he doesn't make anything in seventy three, but in seventy four he does Zardoz, Murder on the Orient Express, and something called Ransom. So that's so experimental comfortable ensemble piece and then whatever the hell ransom is i know nothing right. about it um maybe maybe that's the other ua movie could maybe be that's the other small picture i, I wonder if it's it a cop picture or if he uh, man i know nothing about it that might be worth looking at i mean he's always worth watching even in something like wrong is right he's still always worth watching Whoa. because for me He's up there with McQueen in terms of a guy whose natural charisma could be an alternate energy source. You know, you just your your eye goes right to him on a movie screen, and it doesn't matter. You know, I, I could it would be that way if I'd never seen a James Bond movie. You know, I, I rewatched The Hill to both. This was kind of an excuse to rewatch it, but how wildly different it is from Thunderball. Same year, same guy. Yeah, and it's so good. And it's so sharp, and you get you clearly see that it's the director behind Failsafe the year before because there's so much of Failsafe in that movie and how it's shot, how it's cut. But it's like he could have done anything, he could have done anything, and he elected to put his clout behind this little two and a half million dollar movie that didn't do real well. I mean, it got great reviews, but I think it did maybe four million or something like that at the time where Thunderball is pulling in what a hundred around the world. But here he is trying something wild and different. I absolutely commend that choice. And then certain choices he makes that aren't so great, that aren't so, you know, easy to but explain. But what for me is interesting, because that whole 74, that the offense, Zardoz, Murder on the Orient Express, and whatever Ransom is, he's he's still kind of playing under his age a little bit, or he's yeah. playing a kind of character that hasn't hasn't addressed his aging i mean i guess in murder of the orient express he's kind of this retired colonel kind of guy right or he's a he's a, he's a military officer but isn't he isn't he retired he's a colonel mustard type i think yeah. yeah but something about those movies in 75 76 which are man who would be king wind of the lion robin and marion those three movies he's really willing to say you know i'm i'm bald i have gray hair right 
and get used to it. And then Highlander, he settles into the old dog role. So you see that in, you know, Highlander and Last Crusade and Family Business and The Rock and, you know, where he becomes this old charismatic mentor who's who's been there, done that and is now saddled with, you know, a younger mentee or sidekick or whatever. So we're going to drill down on three of those movies and and the we're, the Wind and the Lion and we're going to talk about where his career was then. We'll Then we're going to look at, at the Untouchables and then we're going to look at Hunt for Red October. But before we jump into that, the other one I just want to mention from 76 that he did right after Robin and Marion, after he's done these three movies where he's these aging guys who kind of are all of them maybe a, they, they're a little smarter, they think they're a little smarter than they really are. They're flawed. Yeah. And then and then in the midst of those four movies, he does this thing called The Next Man. Have, oh, have you guys seen um, that Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, uh, wait. He is, he goes the Alec Guinness route and plays an Arab. He's like a Saudi oil, yeah, he's like oil a, minister? Yeah, he's, like he's like, and he's a, isn't he involved with the UN or something? And there's a sexy assassin. Right. And it's, hold it, Cornelia Sharp. And right. she is, yeah, and so he wants to do something kind of forward-thinking with Saudi oil money or something, and that right. puts him in the crosshairs. Right. Seen it once. And Adolfo, isn't Adolfo Celli? Yes, Adolfo Celli, that famous <laughs> Italian-Brazilian, please dub me every movie I'm in, in what we call his post-diabolic retirement. Um, yeah, he's in it too. Yeah. Film directed by Richard Serafian, who did, van- who did, yeah, Vanishing Point. Who is not punching at his weight with that movie. Um, that, that that script is beneath him. It's it's very hokey and very um, uh, sentimental. It, it, yeah. it, it, just, it just leans a lot on some pretty creaky stuff. But, yeah, yeah. So it's a, such a weird choice when he yeah. makes those other movies that are so shrewd. Yeah, and it's almost like he had a lapse and thinks I can still play an Arab, know, the, the, an uncomplicated Arab versus. Well, he does play a complicated Arab. Well, he's a Berber. I know he's a Berber. Yeah, Berbers. let's, let's but, go but North in, African in the Arab lion, versus he's, he the has House already of Solid. played a, a Middle Eastern character uh, with the Wind of the Lion. You think he called Guinness for a few pointers on that? You think he calls Alec Guinness after he'd already done it in Wind of the Lion? Yeah, I yeah that's for, that's you know, a movie a that's you're, you're you're right. I wonder how, and I wonder at that point how he's picking scripts because it's Sean Connery who we all view as headstrong as as imperious as an ego the size of his box office and talent so you wonder how he's picking scripts because he picks three honeys right he's in right. three great right. movies in that year and then one it's like what what grabbed you was it topical was this your man with the golden gun were you like oil crisis and this is the kids are going to love this or was it him trying to play liberal I just, it's very strange, that movie, that choice, yeah. particularly. Yeah, it's an odd one. Well, John, you told me that you saw The uh, the Wind and the Lion, which is a film directed and written by John Milius. Great movie. For the, for the first time, just this week. Yeah, just this week. I, well, what did you think? You and, I talk, you and I had talked about it before, and I think there was talk we were going to watch it together at some point, and it never happened. And then I blind bought it from, from Warner Archives, just knowing it would be worth my while. Love John Milius, love the setting, love Sean Connery, and I adored it. I actually thought it was a it was a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. To be honest with you, I think for some reason, even with Milius behind the the camera, I, I somehow thought it was going to be kind of dry, not literally, uh, figuratively dry. <laughs> I don't know why, but when I was immediately the first few shots, like when you get these you get these tight kind of tight shots tracking with these horsemen on the beach. 
I immediately knew, oh, this is going to be a blast. This is going to be like a, a rip-roaring adventure movie. And I'm not sure if it goes full, fully swashbuckler that route, but it's got a lot of meat to it too. But it's, man, I had a blast watching it. And I thought everybody was great in it. And I honestly think it's some of his best work as an actor. There were moments, there were scenes in it that I was like, man, sometimes I forget Connery can do this kind of thing, you know? And it's not Finding Forrester, Oscar-y, like searching for the Oscar type of acting. It's it's fun. It's like thoughtful. It's perfect for the moment. And it's playing against someone else uh, that he is capable of doing. Sometimes you forget, like you think of Connery, sometimes you think of Connery as being this problem on the set, maybe being selfish but I probably thought he was, it seemed to me he was very generous. I think Candace Bergen could really hold her own with him too. And that's where I think a lot of the good performance came from. And so who was originally cast to play Candace Bergen? That was, it was a last minute casting, right? Oh. Was it Faye Dunaway? Faye Dunaway was originally on. And I believe that she had to drop out that. at the last second. Yeah. Wow. Um, thank, thank, thank you. I mean, look, I appreciate Faye Dunaway. Yeah. A lot of her performances through the years are, are, are iconic, or the movie she was in was iconic, however you want to characterize it. I'm really glad she was not in this role. I don't think this yeah, movie would have That would have been really weird because there's something about Candace Bergen that is so above it all in a way and yet mm-hmm. vulnerable. And I can't see I, that would be. I, I think it, yeah, that's that's interesting to think about Faye Dunaway in that role. Yeah, you. Tr- and Candace Bergen's pretty good on a horse too. She's she did a couple of several westerns where she where she yep. got had to ride and shoot, and so there's that probably that was uh, appealing as well. That you know, was the thing that of, made it work. Here's a little bit of Candace Bergen said, trivia. Mm-hmm. I used to run into her in the post office in Paris all the time because she lived two apartments down from us when I would visit my father on the Ile Saint-Louis in Paris in the summer, and she and her husband had an apartment just down the street from us, so I would see her in the post office like four <laughs> or five times every summer. And I almost wanted to say you were great on Saturday Night Live because I was, I was a kid and that's all I really knew her from. But anyway... Back to back to the actual movie. Well, what she, were you going to say, so John? Melia said that the fact that she was already proficient on a horse was a big part of why it was they were able to just get back to shooting right away. I'm forgetting what it was that happened with Dunaway. I think something. I think she got injured. Like they were starting. They were starting. That's how last minute it was. Uh, or she ran over. I can't remember which. But it was very last minute casting. And the fact that Candace Bergen could already ride a horse made the, all the difference. It was like, well, we can we don't have to po- stop and get her trained on a horse. We can just go right into it. And I just think, you know, there's something about her steely disposition. You're right, though. At that age, she was she still had that vulnerability to her. Now, I think when she get older, Murphy, your Murphy Brown, Candace Bergen's just got the steely this. You know, you're just like, there's not much vulnerability there. There is when she could make it happen because she's a great actor. But... Uh, in this case, yeah, I thought she played it so well, and it's a it's a Catherine Hepburn kind of role, to me. Yeah, That's oh, for I sure, see it. for sure. And she frustrates him. It's it's just a joy to watch her frustrate him and to see how he responds to it because he's not. You almost feel like if he was playing it off Faye Dunaway, you would you would get anno- so annoyed with him. <laughs> if you get what I mean? <laughs> you wouldn't want to watch horse. it. It would be uncomfortable <laughs> to watch. You know, yeah. in in this case, it's like. You're kind of rooting for the back and forth. You're kind of rooting for both of them in these clashes that they have. And particularly particularly in the scene where um, the guy comes to present him with Roosevelt's uh, uh, deal. And, you know, Connery's sitting there on his sort of like on a throne with his men surrounding him. He's handed this this 
deal. And he kind of scoffs at it. And she's like, no, you got to take it. And the way she negotiates with him, it frustrates him so much. But he, you know he lost. He knows he lost. He knows that he's got to give in to what she's saying and that she's not going to back down. And I just, I think that's one of the best scenes I've ever seen Connery perform. Can we, can we listen to that? There's no reason we can't drop no, that in, let's right? let's do it. The American Basha wished that a Raisuli act in haste, as the other Europeans are not pleased. You must take their offer. Each day that you keep us here, the Europeans use as an excuse to land more troops. Everything that you have fought for is wasted. They are using you, Raizuli. You are becoming a dupe to them. Do not call the Raizuli a dupe. I do not need the counsel of women. The American woman is true. Every day more Germans travel to Fez. They have guns that need wheels to carry them. What is stopping you? Can't you see? It is no longer our concern. The great powers want this land, and they will fight each other to take this land, and when they are done, there will be nothing. Not your mountains, nor your palace, not pride, nor your honor. It is a wind so strong, no tree can stand in it. And where there are no trees, there is no shade from the sun. And what is land without shade from the sun? Desert. The desert I know very well. Mrs. Pedicaris, you speak like a Berber. <laughs> it must be the heat. Why do you do this? I do not ordinarily ask the counsel of any man, let alone the counsel of women. You, you're not even one of my wives. I should certainly say not. I am not. Children, come here. We have no more business here. Let these brigands decide for themselves what they shall do with us. Mrs. Pedicaris, I have decided it would please me to return you to President Roosevelt because you're a lot of trouble. Perhaps he will know what to do with you. It is not my fate to find out. <laughs> Even you laugh at the Raisuli. This woman has taken a Raisuli. <laughs> you say such things in front of my men. What has become of honor, respect? Everything is changing, drifting away on the wind. It's been a bad year. The next one will probably be worse. The other moment that I like is after that, when she realizes that he's just bluffing, that he's not going to kill her. And it's such a sweet moment between the two of them. And, and she's so good in it. And he is kind of like, he, he, he hits this point in this part of his career where it's really fun to watch him figure stuff out. Like he doesn't quite get it and he's figuring it out and he does that in Man Who Would Be King. He does it in Robin and Mary and you see things dawn on him that are, it's not like he's just solved a problem as James Bond. It's like he's, he's figuring something out about how people interact. And I just think that God, he's just amazing in in this in this period in his career. Yeah. I wonder how he and Milius got along, given that they're both fairly macho types, um, and that Milius would be a director who would push back if Connery, and Connery would be an actor who would push back, but who would probably also be certainly if you look at the other films he's making, which are not you know they're not 
all aggressively macho or whatever, not all of them, um, you wonder how those two got along and if it was a pleasant shoot. Because, you know, Connery says that The Man Who Would Be King is his favorite movie that he made. And Michael Caine, believe it or not, said the same thing and that the shoot was just, you know, wonderful and, and I'm sure, you know, full of whiskey and John Huston stories and all this other stuff. But I wonder if The Man Who Would Be King was as pleasant an experience for everybody involved. Well, apparently it was because from that Wind point on, every chance that Connery had to hire somebody to come in and rewrite him, he hired John Milius. So yeah. Red, October, yeah, Red October, the dialogue in Red October, there's a lot of Milius in there. And so he became, Milius became Connery's first choice as somebody to come in at the last minute, polish his dialogue. So they clearly understood each other. Uh, it's It's interesting that Milius wouldn't direct anything else that Connery would be in, but I guess... The pickings are fairly slim, I guess, when we think about the re- the, the next four movies. That four I'm sure movies that Milius tried to get him to play Cool Hand in Flight of the Intruder, but it just didn't work. Mm. He, just he was going to have the Harry Dean part stand yeah, part. Yeah, that's in exactly what I was thinking. Avenge <laughs> me! Avenge <laughs> me! Don't even cry about me, Sean. Yeah, that would be great. That would have been great. Yeah, I was actually just scrambling to try to think of who he could have been in Conan, but... I'm he not replacing have, he would have been, in Conan. He would I guess he would have been the Max von Sydow part. I guess, but I'm not Which replacing I swear Max watching that movie. One, I love, huh? I love that was movie it? so much. I can't think of anyone else being Oh, I feel in that like movie. that I feel like that part was supposed to be John Huston and that John Milley yeah. has probably said to Max von Sydow, "Can you do it like John Huston would do it?" because he sure sounds yeah. like John Huston in that scene. That's fine. I just I don't, that's one of those movies that I don't have any problems with at all. <laughs> Anywhere, so when you think of re, one of those movies where it's like recasting just doesn't seem possible to me in Conan. Yeah, I, I, it's an amazingly entertaining movie and kind of perfect as it is for sure. Yeah. I, I was tempted to, to choose um, Robin and Marion. I know that that's a favorite of yours. I've only seen it once. Tell me a little bit about why you love it so much. I'm not, I'm not well, disagreeing I... or anything and saying I don't love it, but I've seen it once really enjoyed it but Mitch I know that when we were doing KCUR a lot um, you had brought that up you did it I think once uh, I don't remember what our theme was but you mentioned it more than once look I, I don't want to stop anything here but can we keep going we should save it yeah sure yeah we should huh? save that for another episode because I'm sure that would be if we did another episode of this that's probably what Mitch would choose this is what okay. it's like to do a podcast with Hitler. That's fine. So That's we're fine. still no. on my, we're still on the win of the lion, which is, which was my pick. So we can continue to talk about that. And we'll, we'll talk about Robin and Mary in some of the, some of the day. Uh, you know what the stunt man was on and stunt coordinator on win of the lion. I'm hoping you're going to tell me how neat him, but you're not. It's I'm not how neat him. It's Terry, <laughs> second, Terry Leonard. Second best. Terry, Terry Leonard. Leonard. Yeah. Terry Leonard Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And he's all stunts, over. Who better? Yeah, He's, I watched the commentary. I just like after I watch the movie. Often when I like a movie enough, I'll just start turn it right back on with the commentary, yeah. and maybe go to sleep halfway through it or whatever. And uh, in that opening, the attack up on the house uh, that opens the film, Melius just pointed out like eight different Terry Leonard falls, like horse falls. There's like eight different. Oh, there's Terry again, and there he is again, and then he's the one that falls out the window. He's it's like. Man, that poor man, how many times did he go through this? You could tell what you you know that Melius, you know, if Spielberg didn't already know Terry Leonard, uh Melius was like, Oh, you have to bring him in for 
Raiders. You got to, you know, it's because he's so perfect for everything in Raiders too. Oh, thanks. Is the cameraman, uh, the cameraman's Billy, Billy Williams, right? Yeah. Is he, does he play the guy who is having wine with, Candace Bergen at the beginning. That's what I oh, thought. Oh, damn. I'm out of bullets. Yeah, that guy, right? <laughs> yes, that guy. Because when I was watching really the last time with another friend of mine, he's like, that's not him. I thought, yeah, I think, I think that is. It yeah. absolutely is, yeah. And and let me just say, amazing job in this movie. I, this movie is beautifully shot. Yeah. yeah. And so Melius is, is, talks a lot about David Lean. So it's very much like, hey, I'm going to make my Lawrence of Arabia is what we have here. He says it flat out. And man, he really does. Williams really brings some of those the panoramic, beautiful shots of high above bluffs with this de- the desert expanse out in the distance. All this stuff. It just makes me so happy when I'm watching a movie. And I think the two the 60s movies that meant so much to that whole generation of filmmakers, uh, John Milius made them both in this film because it's the last 20 minutes is The Wild Bunch and the mm-hmm. first hour and a half is uh, Lawrence of Arabia. It's also a tour de force. That's the other thing that's so interesting about it that surprises people. And we talk about a tour, tour de force. We talk about a film that all of the action appears kind of effortless and all of the emotions and all of the banter and all of it feels effortless and, and fun and, and effervescent like Robin Hood with Errol Flynn or The Three Musketeers, the Richard Lester version. And this is very much like that. It's It's really entertaining. And I don't know whether... Maybe, like you said, John, you were surprised by that. I don't know whether people who haven't seen the movie realize that it's so much fun, but it's a boy's adventure movie, so much so that as you get into the third act of the film, it begins to pay a lot of attention to how the little boy sees everything that's happening all around him. There's a couple of Mary Poppins-style kids that are on this adventure Mm -hmm. that are never obnoxious and that are really down for the adventure, which is one of the things that makes it so wonderful versus... You know, the Jurassic Park kids are screaming and trying to run away from everything. These kids are leaning right into it. Even the girl says she wants to learn to be a brigand like like the Rizuli. And the kids in Jurassic Park, by the way, save the park. Lex figures out the Unix system, so let's not denigrate the kids That's true. too much. That's you're true. right. You're right. That's not fair. But yeah, her kids, fair. her kids, It's you're right. I, I wonder if they're sort of surrogates for... You know, little boys in the audience, or the little boy who lives inside John Milius, um, pretty <laughs> yeah, much, who, think, who never, yeah. who never, who never grew up. Um, but yeah, the, there's there's um, a, a sort of a, a, a wonder in the travelogue sense of it, in the adventure sense of it, that these kids are definitely out of their mom's comfort zone, but they're having the time of their lives, which harkens back to a little bit of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, and where a cardboard box could be a pirate ship, and and that kind of vibe, which is, you're right, it, it's one of the pleasures of the movie, and it, it's a, it's a, one of those movies where you get the vibe, and you hope that it was as much fun to make as it is to watch, like, like with Cannibal Run, you get, like, everybody gets drunk and gets together to make a movie, but it's kind of a turd, whereas this one, it's really, really good, and you hope that the director and the guy who is the force behind this movie, that his, his enthusiasm kind of infected the whole crew, and you kind of hope that it was absolutely as as fun to make as it is to watch, because it really, the fun on screen, it's, it's swashbuckling with a capital S, you know, the whole brigandine and buccaneering vibe of it and, and yet in an historical playground which Milius would revisit when he made Rough Riders in 1998 with Tom Berenger as FDR uh, FDR, FDR. As Teddy Roosevelt excuse <laughs> me as, oh, uh, please let me see being, that. being pushed up San Juan Hill in his wheelchair 
Manning a Manning a Gatling gun. Yeah, when, when he was uh, Teddy Roosevelt saying "bully" in every other line, but it's clearly an era that he adores, um, both for I would say the whiff of American exceptionalism that seemed very prominent back then, and and um, the kind of harnessing of pioneer spirit and 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 the Minuteman to do great things throughout the world, but also the romance of a you know of of the uh, North African kind of Berber and 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 um, what were they in uh, the War of eighteen twelve and um, the uh, Tripoli and um, uh, yeah the bar yeah the Barbary pirates Barbary yeah. thank you yeah um, I well, think well, that you know that historically the character the Pedicaris character who was kidnapped by the Rizuli was a dude, uh, was a dude. <laughs> and so dude, Milius yeah. turns it into a woman. So that there's this uh, chemistry between the two of them, a battle of the sexes kind of thing. And it's really, it's great. And it's great historical fiction. And that brings me to the other part of the movie, which is Teddy Roosevelt as played by Brian Keith. What do we think about old Brian Keith in this movie? I adore it. I, I thought like he was too. amazing. Yeah. Everything. So he, I'm trying to remember, do we meet him boxing Terry Leonard? Isn't that what we get? Is that the first scene we get with the uh, Roosevelt? Is he's boxing oh with God. the guy Be- sparring? A hapless sparring no, the first death. picture, the first moment is when he's has got his hand on the globe. That's right. That's right. With it, <laughs> with it over. Uh, well, just the the idea, the the old fashioned like curled underhand uh, position fisticuffs. Uh, and Mark with, was and the Queensberry rules, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and that is Terry Leonard. He's boxing, so he's probably he's probably letting himself be a punching bag. So he gets some pretty authentic-looking uh, sparring going on. Let him go, and says Milius. Him, yeah, let him go. Yep, fantastic scene. Everything. He, yeah, he's a perfect Roosevelt. Um, I, I thought I was actually excited every time they cut to him. I was excited to get a little Teddy, you know. And then the, all the bear, the bear stuff is great. You know, like the when he sees at the end when he sees the bear stuffed. It's so beautiful to him. He has to be left alone with the bear, all that stuff. So yeah, um, I meant to grab the Pauline Kale review of this that I have up in a book. I've got like these four volumes that are all reviews from all sorts of different papers in, in around this period. I think I've got one for 68 through like 75 or something like that. And um, th- th- it's weird because the response to the movie when it came out was that everybody kind of got the fact that there was it's a little bit of a joke like there's kind of a tongue-in-cheek quality to it but it's mm-hmm. not played like the terrible flashman movie with malcolm mcdowell where everything is just a big joke and so it walks this really interesting line where these characters are both ridiculous but believable and and something truthful about about all of them and so when he says i want to be alone with my bear it's both funny and kind of believable because that's probably (laughs) what he would say uh but he he, both he and the rizuli have moments where they do the same thing you know that boxing scene he's like he has obviously has no respect for human life and then later on in the movie the rizuli says does this roosevelt have no respect for human life right and so he does a really nice job of knitting these two stories that never really intersect um with each other and it's 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 pretty impressive well, john it, houston it, helps too it's interesting that you get this juxtaposition like two different uh introductions to them as physically right because the rizuli doesn't take part in the raid right we don't meet him we meet him he's looking at a flower after all the carnage and violence of the opening raid where the where their family is kidnapped and then when we really introduce him as a physical force on someone he 
murders two guys, beheads a guy, two guys, right? Yeah. And compare that to sparring with a sparring partner that's probably giving in to you a little. I think we get a little bit of a juxtaposition of what their position is in the world. Roosevelt can order troops and ships to go to the shore, and the Rizuli is really down on the ground level, gritty, uh, facing danger head on. I think that's a. I, I don't think that's an accident that we're introduced to them both that way, uh, separately. So, I don't know. More tongue in cheek, and and I think to, to your point about it, the tongue in cheek sort of moment with the bear. At that point, you're so invested in this. He's been riding this tonal kind of like straddling this tonal thing so deftly throughout the film. Where the yeah, it's funny, it's kind of comedic, and then but it's deadly serious at sometimes. And he's writing those two tones. By then, I'm all, I'm so invested. I didn't really think of it that way when he goes to the bear. I just kind of took it seriously. And uh, but I see what you're saying. You know, I don't know. I it's think that will entertain. The movie's just really entertaining, and so yeah. that's part of the that's part of what it means to be entertaining is to be able to see things differently and have these roller coaster <coughs> ride of emotions. Another just weird sidebar is that you know the script he wrote in past tense, which is so strange. <laughs> it's the only screenplay I've ever read that was in past tense. And he said, yeah. "Well, I thought it was it was history, so I thought I'd try it and write it in past tense." That's so an interesting gimmick. Isn't that wild? <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's I, only it, about eighty-five pages. Super short script, too. Isn't that one of those? As you're, you know, like in your in years of studying screenplay, that's that's one of those scripts that always comes up as sort of like a famous moment and like. Melius decided to do this odd thing, <laughs> and you're always like, "Don't do that, though. Please don't do that." It's <laughs> right, so like, right. It's let's been take done it. once. Let's uh, let's feel like we're watching a movie as we're uh, as we're reading, as opposed to uh, reading a historical text. Well, should we move on to the next? Uh, we should, but I want to get Jason? us there historically through this okay. chronology, which is Sounds kind good. of weird. So, so after that that period we've talked about, um, Connery does a small part in a bridge too far which is weird because it yes and it kind of echoes his appearance in uh, the longest day in the sense that it's yeah. one of these big ensemble world war ii movies except you uh, could it, command a hell of a lot of money back then at that point exactly right, right. Every, everybody so did okay yeah um he makes the great train robbery which is probably another one that would be worth discussing on, a, on another show it's a, it's a really interesting movie for uh, lots of reasons and he's playing a pretty dashing gentleman thief in that film so he's he's got the toupee back on and his beard is brown again and he's you know so he's playing younger getting excited um, about he, meteor getting excited then, then, that's where we're that's where we're going because this he also did in addition to cuba which we talked about uh which is a totally worth your time it's it's a strange film but it's it's not a waste of time at all and then of course he did meteor that year as well which jason say five minutes about five words about meteor five minutes about meteor if you want to hear five words about it, I loved every minute of it. That's six. <laughs> but it's just, it's just, it's just so, it's, it's, it is a turd from, from beginning to end. It is, it is mis, it is, it is poorly conceived. It is on a, a budget that makes Monty Python and the Holy Grail look amazingly well funded. I mean, it just, it's so, I, I, I don't, I, it's like what were you thinking guy you know you have people to insulate you from stuff like this to you have people who are who you probably pay to say this is not nope this is not going to be a towering inferno this is not going to be a poseidon adventure this is not going to be earthquake 
this is not going to be anything like that. It's going to be, this is going to, it's not even going to be the Cassandra Crossing. This is going to be maybe Avalanche or the Deadly Bees, but it's, we're going to throw a little bit of money at it and cast some big name people. And he's like, you know what? I'm in. Why? Why would he do it? Do you know who directed it? Isn't it Giller? It's not Gillerman, is it? Is it John Gillerman? I I don't know. I think Gillerman? Who did Towering Inferno and Dino's King Kong, that guy? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is it okay, Gil- I can look it up. I, just it, I think it's Gillerman. I think, head. but don't quote me. It could. It, it has so, a lot of people say it has that that John Gillerman feeling, even if it isn't his. So then, eighty one comes around Outland, Outland, which we mentioned, yeah. and then a small role in Time Bandits, where he plays a literal king. He plays King Agamemnon. Do you know what the it's, script said that Michael Palin wrote um, the script for Agamemnon? Yeah, yeah. It's like Sean Connery or failing that someone that we could afford, like a Connery-like person that we who is affordable or something like that, right? Right, right. And <laughs> An equally could, uh, charismatic but more affordable. And he's too. great in it. He's so great. He is yes. He is lean and beautiful and, and charismatic and warm and human and imperious. And he's such – it's it's great. He's so good and in it. And the old dog. It's and like you're the, right. You're right. The, the old this warrior is, this time, literally. the first old dog role that he – that he does yeah the minotaur almost beats the the hell out of him and it's up to kevin showing up to save him you're right that giant thing almost kills him and he's clearly past his prime because he's beating the hell out of him and crumples up his shield and knocks him for a loop and he has to depend on a time traveling british kid to get him out of it but you're right the old dog is kind of makes his first appearance there but he's so good in it he's so great I love Time Bandits. I love John, Time Bandits, period, but as Agamemnon, he's sensational. He's amazing, isn't he? Yeah, uh, I, this, just in, this has just been handed to me. No, Ronald Neem. Oh, Ronald Neem, who did Poseidon the Poseidon Adventure. Adventure. And did, Hopscotch. Did, did Meteor. Ah, ouch. Okay. I've always been a Hopscotch fan. It has so, that uh, Ronald yeah. Neem feeling, yeah, yeah. though, doesn't it? It really <laughs> has that Ronald Neem feeling. <laughs> Jesus. So then, 82 is a strange year for him because he does Five Days, One Summer, which is this romance directed by Fred Zinnemann, which hmm. is so... I literally have never heard of it. it well, it'll put you to sleep. Oh. It's it's really, yeah, mm, yeah, not a good choice. Um, Ernest and, and everything else, not not Ernest Goes to Camp, but Ernest... Know <laughs> what I mean, Sean? <laughs> not Borgnine. <laughs> nor, Berg, nor, nor, nor Borgnine. Um, very earnest uh, autumnal love story in the Swiss Alps. I'm sure it was a very beautiful location. Uh, he makes Wrong is Right with with uh, Richard Brooks, and it's a terrible movie, I think. Uh, and awful. then and then, then he says, something's not working, so he makes Never Say Never Again, mm-hmm. which is a big day, <laughs> yeah. day and, a, and he goes, you know, he puts the lid on the James Bond thing. Uh, again, apparently a very troubled production, and he and Kirshner fought, and it was just apparently just wasn't a very pleasant experience. He's great in it, though. Boy, he looks better he, good. than he did at he age does. forty. I think he was forty-one when he did Diamonds Are Forever, and he's all bloated and and you know too tan. He looks great in Never Say Never Again. He does. I agree. I agree. And he's he is really enjoying being James Bond in this one. You know the way that Roger Moore enjoys being James Bond. Connery kind of seems to be enjoying it there. And then the weird thing is right after this, he makes this movie called Sword of the Valiant. Oh, which, Golden Globus. Um if it was it was a it was a pickup. Or is that because, Sir Gowan and the Green so, Knight? Yeah. Uh, here's that's the thing. That's the thing. Sword of the Valiant is Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, but 
Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is made twice by the same director. He he made it once, and then because of some funny legal stuff, he turned around and he made it. He sold it to somebody else, and he made it again. And this was, and you're maybe right. Maybe Cannon did did pick this up, but this was the point where Connery was saying, "If you can guarantee me a million dollars with the offer, I'll do your movie." Because and they, so. Go ahead. I, well, I knew that it was Golden Globe. It was Golden Globus because they're the ones who insisted on casting Miles O'Keefe. Um, the director had originally wanted, I think, Mark Hamill as Sir Gowan, um, uh-huh. and because Connery plays the Green Knight, um, right. and and Golden Globus are like, eh, we've got you know, we we've got Ator, you know, so we're gonna we're gonna put Miles O'Keefe in there, and you know, get him in some some small undies and get maybe get a buffalo right. shot in there for the ladies, yeah. Which brings me to, to Ronnie Lacey, who is in the movie. And I think he was in both versions, both Sir Gowan and the Green Knight uh, and Sword of the Valiant, because he knew that director. And so he was who was telling me all these stories about just how crazy this whole thing was. And then there were lawsuits. I think Golan and Globus found out he'd made the movie before with a different title. And so they, 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 there was lawsuits flying, and the movie was buried for a long time. And, and uh, uh, yeah, and Connery, though plays the green knight so that's his like pay me a million dollars and so he's kind of in that he's in that zone so that's got to be crazy though because there are any number of bigger productions bigger bigger studios that would have paid him more than a million but i bet the million was accompanied by i i want to work for a week and no more it was it was it was a there was a specific time frame yeah and i want to and and so so he does that and what movie does he do right after sword of the valiant highlander highlander same thing Huh. You want me to come in and play this side part? Here's my price. Here's the time frame. I'm, I'm there. F- I'm, I'm in for it. And unlike Sir Gawain and the Green Knight or Sword of the Valiant, he was really good in Highlander. Was and Highlander really was good. a really good movie. It was like the, it, it worked. Something worked. And he is playing not the villain from Sword of the Valiant. He's playing the old dog again. With what who is widely considered the Miles O'Keefe of France, Christopher Lambert. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so, oh, so, so that would be kind of a, a bit of a homecoming for him, wouldn't it? That would be. So Highlander, kind of, do we want to call that mod- the beginning of modern era Connery as we know him? Is is that our? I, is I think that a so good because I think so. Act? I think I think so. It's because it's the same year as um, Name of the Rose. Yeah, where yeah. he plays again. I mean, William Sherlock Holmes in the Middle yeah. Ages, but he's got it. You know, he's got. He's the old dog, uh. with the young young Adsel who he's tutoring, and so this teacher wizard Gandalf Obi Wan Kenobi kind of oh, role. Gandalf. He is he if, is sliding into that. You know, if he'd said oh, yes to Gandalf, it was four hundred and fifty million dollars. He was fifteen. They they said you can have fifteen percent, and he said I don't understand the script. No thanks, and and it would have been four hundred and fifty million dollars at the end of the day. Jesus. He also said no to the architect in the Matrix because he didn't understand it, and that would have been another kind of payday where he could have purchased the Nassau or wouldn't have had to be a tax fugitive from Britain, you know, hiding his money in Spain or wherever. That would have been enough money to buy Spain. Yeah. So, <laughs> sir, so I assume Sir Ian didn't have the same deal as Connery, right? The Gandalf who took the role didn't get 400. I don't yeah. think so. No, no okay. he's not going home with that. I, and just, so. I just wanted to interject here and say right about now is where I start to connect with Sean Connery. So in my life, outside of Bond, having watched Bond. So that 
that Sean Connery, I'm like, hey, I know that young suave Bond. This is the point in my life where I'm like seeing, so the Presidio's coming, right? So I remember the Presidio being like reviewed, Gene Shalit reviewing it or something, you know? And it was like, oh, that's Sean Connery. Okay. And I kind of had this understanding of who he was, but this is where it's, so you're talking about the beginning of modern era Connery. So for my generation, our generation, Jason, I don't know where you were on your video watching at this point. I hadn't seen Time Bandits yet, or I hadn't seen uh, any of his films in the 70s or early 80s. So now suddenly he's become more of a public presence. And I mm. think it's about he, about right here that he wins Sexiest Man Alive. And people, 87, I think. Yeah, maybe? I think he beats it's... out Mark Harmon for the role. Yeah, Beats out Mark Harmon. They, they were competing on the set of Presidio <laughs> yeah. for the for yeah. a big title. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, so just to give a, you know, I'm, I'm like, 12 years old and I'm starting to say I'm starting to become a Sean Connery fan because of these mm. movies that are coming out well and so we're 1987 and this is the this is the old dog role to end old all old dogs in a way is Malone and the Untouchables which so here's John, our you want... yeah here's our movie number two so of our featured movies we're talking about a whole lot of movies today but Jason, this is the one you wanted to talk about. So if you want to bring, yeah, I think it's this is really in a couple of ways. It is it is his Paul Newman color of money moment. It is it is the guy taking a bit of a victory lap. The role is not showy. Um, It is not really an Oscar bait role. Um, But Connery is so at ease as Malone. Now let's 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 all we could admit that um, his quote Irish accent as Jim Malone is garbage enough garbage that uh, Empire Magazine awarded him worst film accent uh, beating out Cockney Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins and Olivier (laughs) for his quote end of pure Jewish accent in the jazz singer Um, so no one's gonna I mean but Connery can never be anything but Connery right it's you just it's, it's like Eastwood you just it's he is who he is but he inhabits Malone pretty well and we've got the ultimate old dog the the old dog who knows everything about the Chicago police force who knows everything about corruption we surround the old dog with Oscar nominated production design costume design and a score so the movie is lush with a capital L it's a beautiful 30 million dollar movie which in 1987 bought you a lot from that first opening shot that scene setting shot on South LaSalle with you know the beautiful I think it's the uh board of trade building and all those model a's and model t's parked there and the soaring score you know you're in for this wonderful period movie and he's great as malone he is a loner i i, I don't know if he's a widower um but he's certainly a, an old cop who lives alone who is a little too heavy to be involved in action uh who has seen it all but who decides to He's a little bit fed up with the corruption, and he knows everybody behind it, including the chief, who he has a fist fight with um, later in the movie. And he decides to help this idealistic crusading guy, played by Kevin Costner, um, who I think was originally supposed to be played by Don Johnson, I think, and then Mickey Ooh. Rourke also said Whoa, no. Boy. Oh boy! Oh, neither one of those would have. That ouch. Yeah, Costner right has move. an earnestness that those other yeah, two guys guy. couldn't pull off. Exactly. No. He is a nice Which guy. Is... I would say, I, I will say this, I am I am not a Kevin Costner fan and never have been. Um, I I like like two or three of his performances, but I, even, I'm a giant baseball fan and I, he ruins Bull Durham for me. I'm going to really? say that right now. You don't think There's something about crash? his... I, I'm not a big fan either. Oh, man. There's something about, he doesn't have any life to him 
his delivery. There's something about him that's just a little bland, and it works perfectly in Field of Dreams, and it works perfectly here because he's supposed to be the the whole moment where he says, "Let's do some good." That's what he is, and that's what he's. And Costner embodies that really well, I right. think, for this film. Well, I don't so think this, if when I think flat and lifeless, I think Gil Gerard. Okay, so I, I think Costner he might be not showy. Uh, it might be sort of a more even keeled or, or or toned down performance, but to me, I, I don't view him as bland. Although Elliot Ness is supposed to essentially be right a, a good guy, Boy Scout cipher for everything good about law-abiding America. He is a crusading cop, so he's not. It's I don't think. I mean, you can either play it big. In which case you're stealing scenes from Sean Connery, which you're not. No one's going to let you do, or you can play it low key and let the other guys around you go big, particularly Al Capone. Um, so I I think he's a nice, although he does have his big moment at the hotel where he confronts Capone, I which is so startling because he's so low key throughout the movie. So I I like his performance in that movie. Let me let me just say one thing. I think internally he's a good actor. Mm. You get what I mean? There's the moments like when. Um, he's sort of brooding and he's uncertain what to do and he's in his office like right before he uh, meets the the mother of the girl that yeah. was blown up he's it's working there it's when he has to deliver a line that it just doesn't quite come out it kind of goes Meh. it kind of falls so the me. line just, reading aspect of acting is where he loses you <laughs> which is which you know one could argue well one could argue that's a fraction of what acting is though. that's that's I mean true. like I said that's, that's what yeah. that's what I'm saying he's not a bad actor I'm not saying I just don't think some of the lines he delivers in Bull Durham just make me cringe because he just doesn't have the life for it. Yeah, but I, I will but say when the kid says get a hit crash and he says shut up is one of my favorite moments <laughs> in any movie. I think it's terribly funny. But yeah, I will agree that that in that role as, as Crash Davis, he, he might not hit it out of the park, if you will. Mm. But I think as Elliot Ness, in where he is supposed to be, He's not the straw that stirs the drink in this movie. He is surrounded by so much beauty, by so much, by by such big performances that I, I don't think he could be. I think it would the movie wouldn't be able to contain it all. Um, uh, right. Yeah, Mitch. Yeah, I was just gonna say that when I saw it in the theaters, I was really struck by how uh, audiences sometimes would actually laugh at Costner, like laugh wow. at some of those lines because he was so vanilla. But I think you're right, Jason. I think that's part of the charm of the movie. And I think that's probably Brian De Palma was probably laughing his ass off at, at just how earnest he was yeah. and, and probably liked the fact that sometimes people were laughing at him because Capone was more interesting, maybe. Right. I, th- and, I think you've and, got a little bit of, of, of a little Keaton Nicholson dynamic on that, like you had in Batman. But if you think about Kevin Costner and the word earnest, Think about open range and his his um, romance with Annette Benning. That is painfully earnest, right? It is so mm-hmm. you know clutching his the brim of his hat in his hands and working it and buying her a tea set. That's really really earnest. So this we kind of get a little a little touch of that, but you know he's surrounded with giant Al Capone with you know venal reptilian Frank Nitty with and then the heart of the movie Connery as as Jim Malone and. Connery's performance is great. It is not, an, it, it, you know, no one's going to confuse him with F. Murray Abraham. There's nothing internal really going on here. It's just so assured. It, he, to me, it's as assured as his 007 in Thunderball. By Thunderball, he was so comfortable with the role. Like, if you look after he, he beats up the in-drag colonel and he plucks that grape, 
right, and pops it in his mouth. It's such a nice little touch. It's it's just he looks so comfy. And here he inhabits Malone, and you can picture Connery as this aging bachelor, you know, who keeps a shotgun on his Victrola and who mostly goes for, you know, his his bottle of whiskey as opposed to actually preparing himself a healthy meal, but who irons his uniform and polishes the buttons. There's just something so comfy about the performance, and to me, it, it's this great grounding anchor. For, for the entire because the others you know okay Andy Garcia what's what's your gimmick well I'm have integrity and I'm a good shot Charles Martin Smith well I'm a geek who likes adventure and I'm an accountant so neither one of them are, are exactly big roles so he's got to be the big part and I think he inhabits yeah. it perfectly and I would argue that there is something internal to hold on to and I think it's it's right on the surface so when you he, he's a reluctant he's reluctant to join Ness. And you can tell he's scared. You can tell he's scared. I think that at one point he was able to maybe walk the streets do his job a little bit better before the Capone era. And I think the Capone era has kind of made him... He says, I think I decided I was, I'd was i rather live, right? Well, he's not really the kind of guy that's going to go with that. So he goes to Ness and they have this meeting. It's like this iconic shot to me of them like they're praying in the church and he's and, and the and the gist of the scene is what are you prepared to do shall we play that scene right get, now to get capone let's play that scene right now you said you wanted to know how to get capone do you really want to get him you see what i'm saying what are you prepared to do everything within the law and then what are you prepared to do if you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Now, do you want to do that? Are you ready to do that? I'm making you a deal. Do you want this deal? So, to me, that uh, dialogue, what he's saying to Ness, what he's trying to instill in Ness is what you're going to have to do to get the job done, is what is internally going on with him throughout the rest of the movie. And reason I think it's brilliant on De Palma's part, or Mamet's part. David Mamet wrote the script, by the way, if people, listeners don't know that. Um What's brilliant from on their part and then Connery's part is that you're never quite sure how far he's going to go, uh, Malone, to get the job done. So in these scenes, you're like, well, we go out, to, we go to Canada, and we go into the cabin, and he shoots the dead, the dead man through the head to make a point. Well, it's like, what's he going to do after this? And then what's so brilliant about that is if you're watching this movie for the first time, I think I remember watching it. Uh, I was probably about 13 years old when I saw this movie. I thought Connery was probably going to be the hero. I really did. I think I thought that he was going to be the one who was that the got last him. man standing or something. Yeah. Something, well, something to that effect. I did. I knew Elliot Ness wasn't going to die or anything, but I thought it was going to be him doing something in the end. And so his death was hard for me. I was shocked when Malone gets gunned down. Especially because he gets that incredibly badass moment right before he shot down. So right there, you're like, yeah, there's nobody's ever getting this guy. It's so perfectly constructed, uh, the death of Malone, and then the the whole character's constructed so well. Connery doesn't die very often in movies. Prior to this, he had died in 
Well, I guess he died in The Man Who Would Be King. He dies in Robin and Marion, and he dies in the Anderson tapes. And, I mean, it's not normal. He, it's not, no. He's not one of those actors that you kind of would expect to die in the movie, especially in this secondary kind of supporting role. And right. the death's great, right? Where where the camera. I guess he dies in. in Highlander too, doesn't he? But yeah, he keeps coming back to life, so it doesn't. Right? Who cares? <laughs> where the the camera prowls into the apartment as as Ness's POV, and it's just like it's been recarpeted with blood, and he follows that huge blood trail to to the body, and it's just because you you know it's just all of this vitality from him is now you know leaked out on the floor. This incredibly vital guy and it's his death scene is actually great with the he thinks he's reaching for the the saint jude thing and he's reaching for the train schedule instead and it's all crumpled up and bloody in his hand it's a great moment it's a very cinematic but very meaningful death and it's a good way it's 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 an earned death right his character it's it's not some kind of bs manipulation twist your arm and make you cry kind of death it's just it's really great i really do one other thing i wanted to say about this the construction of this film the setup and what something De Palma did in this movie which I've always thought was really funny is that at this point in his career a lot of people had dismissed De Palma as being this like Hitchcock ripoff right Mm. or at least like a lot of critics would say oh god again with the Hitchcock and so he opens the film openly like disregarding Hitchcock's advice about never letting the bomb blow up and kill the kid, you know, the old sabotage lesson <laughs> that Hitchcock learned, right? So he, he immediately says, uh, whatever, you, fuck you if you say I'm just a Hitchcock ripoff. I'm going to do the exact opposite of what he did. And at the same time, he's also setting up the the next sequence after Malone's death, which is when they go to the train station. He makes you believe that that baby could die <laughs> because, hey, guess what? I already killed a child earlier. That makes that scene that much more tense. And, of course, at the same time, he's also uh, homaging another famous scene in film. So, at the same time, he's still doing the old the old uh, homage to the film, the, the legendary filmmaker with the, the Odessa Steps uh, kind of scene. But I always thought that was funny that, you know, in a million years, you would never believe a big Hollywood film with Kevin Costner would kill a baby. Except Brian De Palma can make you believe that he might yeah. handle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, I still that still remember the silhouette of the little girl. Hey, Mister, and she lifts it up in Kerblewy. Oh, yeah, it's it's a pretty startling way to begin the movie. It is. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's and the final shootout is so great. All the all the all the locations they found in Chicago are just. I mean, they're sensational. Whether it's the you know the pedestrian bridge over 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 uh, the river where. Malone and and Ness have their meeting when he, when he just tosses the note, put it in the goddamn trash basket. Um, or or Union Station, the movie is just so, I mean, Chicago is such a part of the movie, and it's such a beautiful part of it. Um, and the movie is a, you know, not, Connery had, had kind of not had a, a lot of home runs, but that movie did I think a hundred million. Or, it, or more. It, it really reinstated Stalled him in his star position, and he he got it. You know, he then followed up with it's not a very good movie, but he follows up with the Presidio again, playing the old dog, playing with a younger actor who, frankly, can't hold a candle to him. Ted Bundy. But then he does Indiana Jones, uh, and he teams up with Sean Connery. I mean, with teams up with Harrison Ford, and that dynamic is fantastic. And so he definitely has found his place. He did family business that year as well, where he was uh, not a very good movie, but it, but he was again, the, the, you know, the old, the old dog of the, of the trio. It was three generations. It was him, Dustin Hoffman and 
Matthew Broderick, right? And we're right. supposed to believe well, the that guys are all... practically clones. I mean, you can <laughs> obviously they're obviously related, obviously related. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, grandfather, son, and grandson. Uh, and then we come to Hunt for Red October, where he puts a slight little kink in this old dog thing in a way because yeah. he's the narrative demands that he's seen as the potential villain, which I guess the producers were always struggling with. Although they hired him, at, he came in at the last minute. He was a, a Klaus Maria not, Brandauer, right? Yeah, so he yeah. comes in at the last minute. Guess who's you know? I, I'll take the job, but you got to get John Milius to come in and rewrite the part. And then everybody starts going. But what are we going to do because they're supposed to believe that Ramius might blow up the world, and we all know Sean Connery would never do that. Klaus Maria Brandauer, on the would other hand. Would absolutely blow the world up and giggle while doing it, yeah. But but so that creates an interesting set of, of challenges, which, John, you're going to talk about the picture. Well, I'll tell you, I, I have never in my life believed that Ramius was, I don't know if it's the Connery thing or not. I, and I can't remember if I read the book before or after the movie. Uh, it was a big deal. So the, I'll just little set up. The Hunt for October is a giant deal in my family. It's my, it's, I would venture to say it's my dad's favorite movie. We were there on opening day uh, for it and there every weekend for about four weekends after. We went back to the movies every Saturday wow. to see the product. I'm not kidding. Oh my my dad, my dad will watch that movie any old time, and I have great memories of going to the Bannister Square Theater and the little the little buttons that said the hunt is on with the with the top of the. I had you know, that. And, I yeah. got free tickets from KY102 to a screening at Bannister. <laughs> nice. That's nice. yeah, I won them on like Max and Tan in the morning. So I think right. you and I were probably there the same weekend. We might have been, and it was wow. just—it's just a great memory. So I have a lot of nostalgic feelings about the Hunt for October. I also think it's tight as a drum as a film. I'm not sure there's a flaw in it. Uh, maybe it's—I don't know. I—I I don't know if I can be objective about that movie. But I'll tell you, I—I I never once thought. I always thought they telegraphed pretty much that he was the good guy from the beginning, partially because uh, Baldwin believes Jack Ryan believes in him. You know, I. I I don't know if at the beginning of the film, if you ever really feel that, that Jack Ryan's worried about Ramius, he's worried about the red October until they really start to talk about Ramius. And then he immediately goes, I know the sentimental nature of this man. I understand where this man really stands and I believe in him. And I think you just go with Jack. No, I think so, that was part of the adjustment that they made. I don't think okay. that they, they expect you to believe it the way that they did initially when it was the Klaus Maria Brandauer. Interesting. Movie. So that was part of the changes that happened when they were, uh, you know, God. throwing him into the role. Well, now Milius minute. wrote all the Russian dialogue for him, all the stuff that was, that was, um, uh, uh, subtitled. Um, but when he comes in and the political officer is reading, um, from the ancient Hindu text, doesn't Connor, I mean, th from that beginning, we kind of get the vibe that Ramius is not so much in favor of any nuclear war whatsoever, right? When, exactly. for example, yep. Putin is reading and he, in, you know, in the whole, I'm sorry about your wife and all that, we kind of get the vibe that Ramius thinks that nuclear war might be absolutely crazy, or at least reads stuff by people who do. Yeah, for sure. And, and even the, so the transition from the subtitled to the English language, it's cool. he pushes it on the lips. It's right on the word Armageddon. So you're kind of getting it right on the button, I think. Uh, then he dismisses it as being his wife's book. But you get the idea. It's, he says, I keep it for sentimental reasons. But you get the idea. No, he's this, he's reading. He's understanding what maybe his wife was trying to tell him these things over the years. You don't need to be told that. But I think the fact that that book contains what it does. Yeah, you know, right off the bat. 
that um, he doesn't dig what's going on with the ship. And um, I mean, that scene, that alone, I remember that blowing my mind, that transition from the Russian to the English. Yeah, it's a neat thing. trick, at, isn't at it? At 14 years old when I saw that really movie, I was cool. like, brilliant. That's so brilliant. That, <laughs> but then he, then he murders, a, murders the man brutally. Badly, yeah. I it's, mean, it's, it's rough. pretty gross. Yeah. yeah. So that can give you a moment of pause. Um, I will say I showed this movie to my eight-year-old son, uh, and he saw after that he thought that Ramius was like he kept going, but isn't he the bad guy? I'm like, well, I guess that's a complicated murder you saw. Would <laughs> a bad guy emotionally bully Tim Curry so easily? <laughs> oh, no. God, Tim Curry's character in this movie is so hilarious. Poor Doctor Petrov just kicked out of the. Yeah, why don't you go do those radiation <laughs> things while we eat dessert now? Yeah, now. Oh, yeah. poor guy. <laughs> thankless role thankless role dr petrov yeah it's uh you know honestly mctiernan at the height of his powers you know he's he's one away from a quadfecta status with this movie um you know takes a dump with medicine man but uh connery clearly trusts him um and and with good reason because if you'd managed to coax a performance like marco ramius out of somebody yeah you'd be trusted too it's it's an incredible 200 million dollars i think box office and deservedly so why baldwin chose to walk away from that franchise is absolutely beyond me given what an absolutely blow the doors off audacious um in beginning it has it's it's red october is an incredibly great movie absolutely thrilling and i do i the 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 death of the canavalov and and captain tupolev still remains one of my favorite things because if you freeze when the torpedo hits you can see the star Star. on the nose of the torpedo and it's so great i love it that big star i will say i can still remember the first few times that we my family we went and saw this movie um the dallas interceding in the path of the torpedo and the and the uh the death of what i forget tupolev's death um, both got standing ovations multiple times on multiple wow. screenings. Just well, absolute, standing ovations. I, okay, I'd say the second got the first one just got wow. the cheers, and the second one got the stand up and cheers and claps, and it was that that exciting of a movie to people, and people it really like, was. I'm, yeah, the only standing ovation I ever saw it, was also but, an American Russian situation, and it was in Rocky Four, the fight in Moscow when Rocky punches Drago and cuts him. And Duke mm-hmm. yells out, he's cut! And it was in Crown Center, November 27th, 1985. It was the opening weekend of the Crown Center Cinema. The entire crowd shot to their feet and went nuts when he cut Drago. And, you know, Drago stands back. He's like, oh, my God, I'm my blood. You know, like <laughs> Superman and Superman to my blood. And everybody went nuts. But I, I'm not at all surprised that, that that happened in 1990 with your with, with Red October because those yeah. are absolutely crowd-pleasing moments. And in a packed theater opening weekend, come on. That's where you need to it see was, that movie. And it was a packed theater every time we went to see it. I hmm. swear. It was, I don't know. It was a crazy, it was one of those crazy movies. I don't think people remember it quite the same as like, you, you got your Star Wars, you got your, the big hit movies. It was a, it was kind of a little mini phenomenon there for a while. Everybody was seeing it. People were talking about it. And of course, it felt that way to us because we, <laughs> it was like our weekend plans. You're going to say it's like your ritual. Like, let's go to the DQ in Red <laughs> no, October. So the weather's not. just right. Oh, and if you showed, if you showed Red October in a theater right now, my dad would go see it. In a heartbeat, I mean, I'd he'll never not watch that movie. Yeah, I oh, too. I would too. <laughs> yeah, you show me any of McTiernan's uh, the the second, third, or fourth movie of his on his resume, and I will absolutely go see him. Yeah. They're just 
I, I saw Predator and Die Hard three times at the Draft House uh, when they were screening him here, and I, I think I've seen Red October when uh, the West Glen, back when that theater existed. Mm. Yeah, I saw it there too. It's it's so great. It's such a great movie. And for a naval geek like me, you know, who who just loves submarines and and all that kind of stuff, it's it's awesome. The ILM, you know, effects where they just are flying these huge models around in smoky rooms, you know, these on big cables that are all computer controlled. It's you know the only computer stuff are like the torpedo bubbles. So mm-hmm. everything else that you're seeing is these big practical models flying around smoky sets, and they're great. It's really cool stuff. And the fact that they built, uh, you know, the top of a Typhoon-class submarine on those giant barges welded together for the for the incredible reveal where we pull back from Ramius and you're like, nothing yeah. digital about that. That's a gigantic submarine mock-up that's that's puttering around in this fjord. That was great. Wow, well, that we was should cool. Probably talk about the set of the October Red October itself. It's one of the great sets ever built. One of my favorite behind-the-scenes shots of all time is. The canted version, they have the the entire Red October bridge canted and Connery and Baldwin standing there with their arms crossed. I think that was like an Entertainment Weekly or something. I remember geeking out over that photo, too, and realizing it's like 55 tons that they have on this hydraulic gimbal thing. And I think the Dallas was on one, too. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's just amazing. It's and it's all practical, right? That's it's it's all it's movie tricks. It's a set that moves, right? I mean, my God, yeah. that's that's Buster Keaton doing stuff like that. So it's it's pretty cool for sure. But, but you know, you realize only later that that the sub looks like something out of Star Wars, the interior, and that real Russian submarines are a lot more right. analog. Not and so less shiny. Than that. So yeah, shiny not so shiny. Well, it's also supposed and, to be yeah. the the it's top the of special the, you know, one. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the what are those right. doors? It's a special one. Right, yeah, the Caterpillar Drive is so great. The whole scene with him at the at the graving dock talking to Skip Tyler and trying to figure out, could you fire it? Yeah, but why would you want to? And, and they finally put it together. And when the thing finally comes on, right, and the, and the huge bass thrum as the Caterpillar plant comes online and you see sort of what looks like neon lights coming down the, the, the drive and then the little squirt of water. And then on the Dallas, the little pew as the, as the contact vanishes. That's such a yeah. cool moment. And then Paladorius' score right there. I've always, it it just does this little da-da-da-da. It's like this dreamy fantasy, almost like, could that really have happened? But it's like perfect for that moment. His score is, I mean, Basil Paladorius' score score in this movie is so amazing. And the supporting cast is really extraordinary as well. Oh, man. I mean, there's so many terrific actors. And we forget that special effects or not, a lot of the time in these kind of movies, you got people standing around looking through periscopes and staring at screens and they have to sell it. And you have to believe these guys are underwater or on top of the water. And there's a really amazing, amazing supporting cast of the film. Well, Courtney B. Vance's uh, Jonesy was definitely what I attached to on this. He was my hero of the movie. I absolutely adored that character. I think my whole family, I think that was just our agreed upon favorite guy in the movie and in a way he's the hero you know he's the guy with the he's at least the guy that has that skill set that they needed none of this would have happened had he not worked out that um the the seismic anomaly and the you know all of that's so brilliant and honestly for a minute there i wanted nothing more than to be a sonar operator on a submarine i'm incredibly claustrophobic (laughs) i'm incredibly claustrophobic claustrophobic. that cracks (laughs) me up it's the dumbest idea i ever had but it was just so 
John gets scared walking <laughs> through my garage because it's only a one-car garage and it's full of junk out it's, there. It's a little sad too, right? Because who knows how many you know, 11 billion rubles invested in the Caterpillar and now the U.S. Navy totally knows how to find it, right? In a, in a second too. It didn't take very long. They figured, <laughs> but, you, but that's because it's Jones. No other sonar operator in all the U.S. Navy would have figured it out. That's what I believe watching that movie, you know? So it's like, well, this was the right ship at the right time with the right crew. And you're right, Mitch. Yeah, the the, the cast is stellar. I, I want one more family anecdote because I think this is indicative of how great a film <laughs> and how it many is. times you've seen my, it. <laughs> my sister was 16 when it came out. 16 year old teenage girl did not want to go. My parents made her go. She said, "Well, I'm not going to see that movie. That macho whatever. I don't know what her. You know, she didn't think she'd like the movie, so she bought a ticket to Driving Miss Daisy. Aww, I can remember this very clearly. But Driving Miss Daisy started 15 or 20 minutes later. So she came into the theater and started watching Red October with us and never left. Um. And cried actual tears when Sam Neill is killed. Oh. And so I would have liked to have seen Montana. Cried <laughs> she, actual tears. She took a rabbit cooking course in his honor. <laughs> well, the, the, she repeatedly went back and saw it again and again with us. Wow. Um, she loved it. So, so her... Her steely te- teenage girl like resistance was broken down by this film, and now she's an admiral in the U.S. <laughs> right now, now she's comp. She's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, that brings us to the end of this spectacular <laughs> Patreon episode. <laughs> Jason just walked out. Jason's he didn't like, even want to say goodbye. I gotta go. I gotta get something happening there. Uh, <laughs> but he seems to have just gotten up and left. So um, I don't. I don't know whether we're supposed to wait for him to come back until we sign off. Either. Or I'm he's got to pee really bad. Is my screen guess. or something? And I think this should all be left in. Jason he, clearly he, had to pee really he's, bad. He's back to say goodbye. <laughs> is he wrangling a dog? Jason, maybe could, that's what's happening. Jason, could you say goodbye to everyone, please? Oh, really? I we don't get to talk about Connery's twenty thousand dollar hairpiece, says Marco Ramius. Oh yeah, twenty thousand dollar hairpiece for an amazing really? hairpiece about... is twenty grand. Yeah, and boy, no they put kidding. it right. Is it not the focal point of the poster? I always found that little like spike. <laughs> it yeah, the the poster art is great. This communist oh. era graphic thing is fantastic. Is. And the and the little October. spiky like front, the widow's peak spiked up. I swear that's the point you're supposed to be looking uh, at. Twenty thousand dollars. It costs twenty thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, twenty grand for his hairpiece. Yeah, that's. You don't even want to know what his craft services cost. That he eats without his closing his mouth every day. <laughs> Anything else, Jason? You want to add before we we? Uh... About Red October, I would honestly want to add that just like what you said, but rattle them off. You know, Richard Jordan. I mean, James Earl Jones. It, it, Jeffrey John, the, the supporting cast blows your mind. And Scott Glenn is as as Mancuso is one of the best things in the movie. He's great. Um, I, I Courtney B. Vance. You know that the thing I'd seen him in before this was Hamburger Hill, where he played Doc, um, and it really was a pretty gritty, gutted out Vietnam movie, pretty bloody, and he was great in it. And so this role was so much lighter for him with his fun little reading glasses, and they're red. Um, that I kind of, uh, for me, it was really startling because I just watched Hamburger Hill on VHS. I'd rented it, and then I saw Red October, and it was so jarring, the difference between Jonesy uh, versus uh, Doc, where he was bandage- bandaging up and pushing guys' guts back in on, you know, on this hill in Vietnam. But 
he's in the in the and in the in the book i know jonesy's super crucial too at getting red october's gear working when they're when they're on board but i i love that the navy was so on board with making this movie like trying to make a top gun for submarines that they you know gave them the use of the you know the, the carrier enterprise and two frigates and like a submarine and you know hey if you guys need to film a submarine doing an emergency surface for when the dallas blows right through the water the navy i mean you couldn't make a better recruiting poster for submarines yep. in this movie it's they almost great. recruited a, really, a claustrophobic really into the it. submarine. <laughs> I almost recruited a guy. Which and son, what are your qualifications? Well, I've seen this movie like eight times. All right, I sign will on say the line. too. Welcome I do board. want to say, give a shout out to Fred Dalton Thompson's uh, momentary his kind of cameo because he has a line that I repeat in my head most often, maybe more often than any uh, movie line in. The- if you're no, about to say Russians, no, don't take a every, dump without. When I'm watching, you know, when okay. I see the news, I'll I'll just say. In my mind, I'll just say, it's, it's going to get out of control. It's going to get out of control. We're lucky to live through it. We'll be lucky to live through it. I say that all the time in my head when I'm... Uh, I thought you were going to say something about reverse mortgages. Didn't he, didn't he, <laughs> no. didn't he sell those? <laughs> <laughs> no. Let's sell it. I, sell it, damn it. It's Magnum who sold it was this after all out. Fred. Fred started. It's, Fred started. Well, we... I mean, the, yeah. the the irony of Fred Dalton Thompson's political career and that being my response to the present uh, news situation. Crazy. But I, I kind of blew the line, but you all know what I'm talking Hollywood about. Hollywood makes strange bedfellows, clearly. Yeah. Next time, John sent a goddamn uh, yeah. memo. God. Yeah, it's it's. I I will say that we really got into um, some really really great movies, but as Mitch rattled off in the filmography, there are some really weird movies that it would definitely behoove us to to watch and the to weird Connery <laughs> hour. So that really, could be some good. really odd choices that you know it's like what ha- Connery working for Golden Globus? That's insane. That's a million bucks or not. That's like taking money from reverse mortgage people from like a, a, a source that he wouldn't need to bother with. It's like Connery walking into a payday lender. Why would you go to Golden Globes when there are other people out there who will guarantee you a million bucks? So I would love to learn more about Sword of the Valiant slash Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and watch it, actually, again, having seen it only once and that was on VHS and it was not great. But I would love to learn more about that movie. Yeah, there's one more bit of trivia, just to bring it full circle, there's one more bit of trivia. Just one more bit of trivia related to Hunt for October. There's one, like, female speaking role in the whole film. Who was it? The stewardess? the actress? Gates McFadden, who was Dr. Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. Just want to make sure we got Star Trek mentioned. What does she do? Is she the stewardess? She's... no, oh my God! Oh, that's right. The stewardess she's has Mrs. Seat Ryan. Line. Never mind. Oh, she's Mrs. No, she's Ryan. Mrs. Ryan. Oh. She drives them to the that drives is? them to Heathrow huh. and everything. Yep. Her big line is no more than two glasses of water, and then she says, "Jack, you'll be late," and that's it. In a British yeah, accent. Gate, British In a British gates. accent. Yeah. Yeah, and then <laughs> yeah. So. so the the actually the female speaking parts are taken care of within the first five minutes of the movie. They are, and then they're gone for the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's true. Well, I just wanted to make sure we mentioned Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> All done. Yeah, man, this was great diving into these. This was great. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. It's always a pleasure having you ring in from the farm. Uh, yeah, my, hopefully the, my barking dogs weren't too obtrusive. They, uh, didn't, they I didn't hear evil. them, so oh, I good. think you didn't hear they one part. doing great. Uh, nothing I can do about it. I think it was the Amazon guy showing up. Sorry. But yes, this was great. Uh, one of my favorite actors. Certainly several of my favorite movies. And like I said, let's go weird next time, man. Let's do some Molly Maguire's and All some right. Cuba 
And so let's do Shalako. Let's let's do some off some, some off brand Connery. Okay, off brand Connery coming up next time. I'm stoked. <laughs> <laughs> Don't promise that it'll never happen, but it sounds like a great idea. Yep. All right, everybody. All right. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Alien Minute Productions supplemental episode on our Patreon page. This will be episode number two of our continuing series, Connery Classics. Uh, you may recall last year we did an episode with our old pal Jason Heck about three Sean Connery movies. We each brought one to the episode. Uh, we did The Untouchables, Dunt for October, and The Lion and Winter. Uh, this episode we're bringing in Actually, my... no, it was The Wind and the Lion. Shoot. <laughs> That's okay. You're right. It happens all the time. That's really easy. Wind and winter. It's so it's there, easy. You know, there's lots of wind in the winter. Yeah. Uh, this this time we're bringing in uh, my uh, ABCDTOS and ABC Devo co-host Joe Mazel. Hey, that's me. To, that's Joe, and uh, we're we're gonna bring him in to talk about three Connery films uh, that we're all bringing to the table to discuss. And Mitch, what's uh, what movie are you bringing this uh, this episode? So we're going to go chronologically. So I'm going to start with The Man Who Would Be King, which gives you an idea of what direction we're headed in what part of Connery's career. <laughs> right. There is no place on earth too forbidding. There is no adventure too dangerous to dare. There is no dream of wealth and glory too impossible for the man who would be king. Connery and Kane. Rogue and renegade, reckless and fearless soldiers of fortune on the richest adventure of their life. Across a thousand miles of danger, come with Sean Connery and Michael Caine as they try to capture a whole country, a scheme for rascals to become royalty in the long-lost land of Alexander the Great, Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King. They share the treasure. They share the danger. They share the adventure. Sean Connery, Michael Caine, and Christopher Plummer in John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. So, 1975, directed by John Huston, which is a movie that I wanted to see for years. I mean, I had read the short story and I had the soundtracks. Um, but yeah, so this was a movie that I anticipated and I really wanted to see and I finally got to see it on TV. But it is such a scope movie that I had no idea what I was missing until I finally <laughs> saw the thing in the proper aspect ratio and in particular the production design because Secundagar, where the third act takes place, Alexander the Great's city, it's really a beautiful set and you can't see any of it. Mm -hmm. on a pan and scan version. Nope. And weirdly enough, you can't see a lot of it even now. Like, Houston is very cagey with how he presents that. You would expect that there would be a big shot when they walk in, and you'd see, like, all the gods in the sacred way, and you'd see the Tholos back in one end, and you'd realize how Greek the whole thing is. And he never gives you the opportunity to just look at it. It's always, you got to look past people, you got to look into the background. And it's a really interesting strategy, and I'm not quite sure why he does it that way, given production value and everything else. Maybe he was just being contrary or something, because you would think that no, Danny no. and Peachy would be really struck by this incredible environment that they walk into. Hmm. So I, th I always thought that was sort of interesting. So I'm still on repeated viewings of the movie 
searching all of the nicks and nooks and crannies of the set you know i'm always, right. I'm always <laughs> trying to see what i can see new this time well the houston certainly doesn't skimp on the scope of the the mountain trek scenes um you know we get a lot of awe-inspiring images there some of which are on location i think it's or at least shot second unit location right of the mountains and then some of them very clear there's lots of good map paintings in there mm-hmm. and how do how do they accomplish that? And one that or two bridge? not so good map paintings. <laughs> well, sometimes not so good map paintings are what I like the most. Though <laughs> I'm a weirdo the when it comes one, to when they see Alexander City, mm-hmm. it's the gate weave that gives the mat away mm-hmm. because it's really beautifully textured into the the mountains and everything, but it's wobbling because I guess somehow there was a, a gate weave issue huh. and so part of it is still and the other part is kind of jittering yeah i don't i i can't say i've ever noticed any of that stuff i mean you could see when there the, the snow bridge uh sequence it's certainly like hey that's not real but no, it's endearingly not, not real to me it's yeah, like oh this agree. is the kind of stuff i love about 70s special effects um the, the artifice of it being there but i'm still enthralled and you know, I think they did a fantastic job. There's a, there's also the snow. I love the when they're resigning to death, you know, the <laughs> sitting around the fire. When this fire goes out, I'll kill you and kill myself. And uh, the way they used to do snow. It's McCabe and Mrs. Miller snow. Yeah, it's right. like that they drop on the end of that. It's just Probably like the whipping. Same. Yeah, it's it's uh, fantastic, you know, phoniness uh, that so I enjoy so much. Let me ask you guys this. Before he cast Connery and Kane, he had a couple of, several different combinations that they went to and they tried to put this thing together with. And it was it was ultimately the, the last one, Newman and Redford, having come off of the Sting, or af, coming off of Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. that when Houston went to them, it was Newman who said, oh, you should get Connery and Kane. But here are the other four, and I want to know, of these other combinations, which would be the best and which would be the worst? So okay. the combinations initially were, first it was Gable and Bogart uh, at the end, and Bogart died, so they, that, mm-hmm. that didn't happen. So old Gable and old Bogart, mm-hmm. um, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, who had been doing several pairings already, um, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, who were in Beckett together, mm-hmm. and um, Newman and Redford. I mean, I kind of lean towards Burton and O'Toole for, because they're British. I, I kind of want them. I want. I like the colonialistic. Like, what was he going to do with Gable and Bogart? Make them. I would Americans. love to hear Bogart do a British accent. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was happening. I don't think that was happening. Clearly, he was going to Americanize the characters. I mean, I don't think. I don't know. I don't think so. I think they were still really? going to be playing these English soldiers, well, then, and that was such a convention, you know, back then that these you, they'd probably continental it up a little bit. But there's plenty of examples of Americans sure. playing English. Sure. And it's usually it's and not bad. Great. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, not, it's not great. Good. That's why I'm preferring to just go with the actual Brits. <laughs> yeah, because Mutiny on the Bounty, right? That's Clark yeah. Gable and Charles Lawton. Right. And Gable's Fletcher Christian, and that's about as he doesn't get real. Yeah. 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 I I think O'Toole and Burton in this situation would have been fantastic. Now, I'm assuming Burton is Connery. And O'Toole, so. O'Toole's peachy and Burton's, yeah, Danny. It right. seems right. I think so. What do you think, Joe? Does that sound? I mean, that would be the I mean, What's your way preference? <laughs> that would be. I think either could do it, but I think that O'Toole. 
Richard Burton has is pompous enough to think he's a god at some point. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, O'Toole sort of like I don't know if like, uh, there's something about like O'Toole's persona where I don't know if you could fully. I would just say that uh, you know, you know, full, like I don't know if you could see him as Danny fully believing in himself. Yeah, the same way mm. that Burton uh, that Burton could. Mm. Although T. E. Lawrence and uh, Eli Cross, both roles that O'Toole played, are both pretty pretty full of themselves and confident and delusions. Yeah, no, he could be. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Um, but I don't know. There, there's a sort of there, there's a vulnerability to Lawrence where you kind of feel where at least I always kind of feel that he's afraid the whole thing will get will fall out from under him at any point yeah I agree I do think that the one problem would be the um how difficult it would be to believe that Burton and O'Toole would sign a contract saying they weren't going to drink yeah well that would be (laughs) I think that would be your main hang up true Uh, they probably they probably would have had the women part that makes it hard to believe that (laughs) these two guys are going to give up women (laughs) for sure and with, you know, um, I always love a good Newman Redford teaming. And for some reason, All as soon as you say them. that, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're both excellent. Uh, that they are. I, I, and I think people were trying to team them up multiple occasions throughout the 70s uh, in other situations. And, I, and, you know, then I think about the snowy sequences and I'm just like, well, just take scenes from Jeremiah Johnson and scenes from Quartet <laughs> and cut them together and we could just see how it would, how it would play. <laughs> You know, but, if you get desperate, well, you, you could have some leftover downhill racer footage. There's oh, downhill lot. racer, too, of course. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so do you think that if it would have been Lancaster and Douglas, would would Douglas have played the Connery part? And it's no. weird. That could be an even split. I think either one of them either one of them could have done either role. I guess yeah. I'm I'm picturing Hunsecker. I'm picturing Lancaster. I don't know, a little larger than life, but I just, I think the last Lancaster movie I saw was The Sweet Soul of Success. So right now I'm like picturing him in that like alpha yeah. role. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm thinking, well, what about Tony Curtis in Lancaster? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bangle Lancer. Donnie, Donnie you, you'll be, <laughs> I'm trying to do my Tony Curtis impersonation. I'm not so great at it. So I think this is such a great film. And yet, one of the first things I always think about is, how would I share this with uh, students? How would, how, how would we watch this movie? And there is a racism at work in this movie. Really? That's very much, you know, <laughs> Kipling. Well, and apparently Michael Caine was really distressed by the way that Billy Fish, Saeed Jaffrey, was treated in the, in the role. And he did advocate for him to be given a little more dignity a little less Gunga Den. Mm-hmm. Um, is this one of those movies that is not aging well? It's not aging great, that's for sure. I mean, the, you, you know, given the context of the scene, you could read it differently. But, you know, the initial, our introduction to Kane, throwing it, throwing the guy off the train just feels icky right off. And he's saying, thank you, sir. You know, all that is very mm-hmm. Gunga Denish too. It, it definitely goes back to that... It just feels like Kipling is kind of hard to do now, right? Like in general. Is there any Kipling that you could do that isn't a little funny in that way? Um, that isn't the Jungle Book? The Jungle yeah. Book aside, yeah. <laughs> Relegated to the animals were good, but yeah. Right. Um, no, I mean, there's troubling aspects to this movie for sure that are really hard to excuse. And uh, on top of that, you know, there's the mis- 
there's sort of a misogyny. I don't know if misogyny is the word. It's just an absence of femininity, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> a severe absence of femininity, where the one woman you get in the entire movie is you know this piece of property, right? So. Um, who ruins yeah, it for everybody? Who ruins, who it, for ruins it for everybody and gets called a slut? Yeah, for like for what? Be- you know, because she refused your advances and you call her a slut. That makes her a slut. Yeah. I always wondered whether there was a. I always wondered whether the line was initially the bitch bit me or something because it just seems slut is such a wrong word. It's just yeah. bizarre mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. I mean, it makes you think. We we you know in our previous episode we talked about the wind and the lion. And as I was watching this this time, I've always considered this, uh, I really love this movie. I always have. It's got those qualities to it that I like. I like when, you know, men on a mission movies, I mm. love the, there's a, like an underlying humor, uh, just something about Kane and, and Connery's back and forth, especially when they're brought in to be dressed down, the scene where they march in and remove hats, place hats back on, all that stuff. <laughs> But then watching it this time after having seen the lion, uh, uh, the uh, Wind and the Lion, I I thought I think I like Wind and the Lion better now simply because a I think Connery's great in this movie. I think he's a I think he's a little bit more interesting to me in the, in the Wind and the Lion. And b there's male female interaction in the, in the, the Lion that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And Candace Bergen's really great. And I'm like, man, this is just so much. It's so much richer to me. Uh, than this movie is. This movie is pretty straightforward and old fashioned and it's not bad for that reason. I'm just thinking now if I'm comparing those two movies, which are coming very close together and are comparable in a lot of ways, I think I prefer uh, uh, the wind and the lion now. You know, it's an interesting comparison and it's a valid comparison as they're both basically turn of the century adventure movies, uh, you know, give or take 20 years between the two, but there's a, like, Wind in the Lion does feel like a young man channeling an old man, where, mm-hmm. where you know, a man, would, would, a man who would be king is definitely an old man. It's a, it's a what, 65, 75-year-old uh, John Huston. Um, Wind in the Lion, I, I do enjoy Wind in the Lion a lot. For some reason, it lacks uh, a pageantry that the man who would be king has. And it feels like it should have a pageantry. Like, you... Every time I watch Wind of the Lion, it's like, God, I wish there were like 400 more extras in any given scene. Oh, <laughs> you I know? see what you mean. Yeah, I think it was a little bit more limited. Yeah, I mean, um, it definitely as far was. As and budget and so on. It's also Milius's, uh, like, it's Milius's attempt to do Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. but Lawrence of Arabia is a film that's sort of like the pageantry of Lawrence of, the Arabia, of Arabia is what makes Lawrence of Arabia. And like, kind of going smaller doesn't really work. Yeah, I think they got, yeah. I, you know, we talked about it. I think they got as much as they could out of the way that uh, Wind in the Lion is, is shot. Mm-hmm. Like, you and get a lot more really than it. good. I'm not putting it down. It's just. Yeah. Well, they, I just bang for the buck in the way that they they composed some shots. And so you can tell it was limited. Like, for instance, the attack on the house, we joked about it. The attack on the house, um, initially where they kidnapped Bergen and the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, remind, oh, I'm forgetting his name. The stuntman. The, Terry Leonard. It's like every single shot is him. Like every <laughs> shot, every stunt is him. Every character. They, yeah. yeah, every character. They they were clearly working on a shoestring for that movie, so the pageantry was a little harder to come by. But they did pretty good with it. But I get you, you know, talking strictly about in product and not how they got there, mm-hmm. this movie definitely has the broader scope. And yes, Mitch, yeah, I, I'm glad. I never did. I never saw this movie on VHS or anything. Um, 
I, I think I probably saw it for the first time about 20 years ago on DVD Lucky or so. You. <laughs> and so I've always seen it that way. And I even had a Blu-ray uh, I rented from Netflix, mailed in Blu-ray that I uh, lost and then found oh, no. and then kept. And then ironically lost again. I have no idea where it is now. Uh, but anyway, it's on HBO Max, folks. So we should mention things like that as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't see this on HBO Max if you have an HBO Max. Max so. What is it that makes this a noteworthy Connery performance, though? Like, what is it that you respond to in in his work? Mm. That's a good question. Uh, is it chemistry? It, almost, I, I can't really think of it as a Connery movie. It's something about the chemistry that he finds with Kane that I always think about when I think about this movie. Like I said earlier, I, and, and with uh, Plummer, to be honest, the opening, the first act is fantastic. I always get like a warm feeling from the first act of this movie because there's this uh, getting together to, the, to, to uh, you know, go on a mission. I love, I just like, you know, in this case, it's only two guys, not seven, like Seven Samurai, which I love, or Guns of Navarone, or movies like that. But uh, there's something about the camaraderie of it all, so I'm not sure what stands out about Connery exactly. It's both of their favorite movies. So each clearly likes the fact that they have a scene partner Mm -hmm. that, you know, brings something out of them. And they don't fight the way that Bergen and and Connery fight in Winning the Lion until Mm -hmm. the very end, so... Seeing them on the same page, more or less, for two thirds of the movie is also unusual. I mean, yeah. Connery didn't make very many buddy movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fu- it's fun that way. He has a good range in this, um, you know, because he, he plays the the crazy priest fortune teller. Uh, you know, he's being these sort of like, uh, you, you know, the, the the kind of like the con man in the first like twenty minutes of the film or so when you first introduce him, or the you know boisterous British gentleman, also you know. The king, uh, the the king, you know the 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 descendant of Alexander the Great. He's not. It's not just like kind of a simple line. And it's not like a one note. Like he's a lot of fun in the Untouchables, but he's ornery old Irish cop from you know scene mm. one to scene twenty five. Like this has this has him doing things that is fun in and of itself. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a sure. really good observation. Lots of colors. Yep. It's- you know, you mentioned the racism, and I, just John, and I, I want to just go back to that scene in the that scene in the rail car where he throws the uh, Indian gentleman with the watermelon out. It's so annoying because it does not have to be that. Like you could have the exact same scene, um, you could still make the uh, Indian dude of the foil, you know, like basically uh, uh, Michael Caine's foil, but. Like you don't need the yes sir you don't, you don't need the, the sort thank of you, like sir. Yeah. the thank you sir the the patronize you know like the patronizing foreigner trying to westernize himself it's just like it's so demeaning <laughs> getting a laugh getting a laugh out of the ingratiating of the colonized you yeah know, of like, the colonized yes <laughs> and, and it's it's like why you're getting a laugh out of this that's the problem really yeah you're not really shading it in any other way. Because you could have the scene and maybe say something about colonial the the attitude. You're you're kind of establishing the mentality of the of one of the two characters that are feel that it's they're destined. They're such big men. They think mm-hmm. we must we must conquer more. You know that's the kind of the idea behind this movie is we're the, we're the big Brits and we've already conquered this country. We fought in Afghanistan, but we're too big to go home. We got to keep conquering, you know. Yeah. And I always ask, this is one of those things. It's a trope of British, 
of a lot of British films or stories about British soldiers over uh, abroad. That I'll, I'll see somebody. It'll be like a British soldier that's still living in India for some reason. He's like been there for thirty years. Like, don't you want to go home? I love it. England's beautiful. Don't you want to? Why do you want to be here? But yeah, they they feel like it's the um, the conquering that that they're about. That's what fuels them. You know. Mm-hmm. So you could say something about that in that scene if you shaded it a little bit different, if you put a little nuance into it. But instead, it's just going for the laugh with the thank you, sir. It's yeah. really just a comedy beat. And it. Um, and it's not a very good one either. No. No, it's stupid. I'm yeah, sure it I got mean, laughs in, in 1975. Rewatching but. it, uh, like the first scene with Billy Fish is just sort of, you know, by Jove, what all that British blah, 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 blah. I can speak English. Um, you know, there was I was watching like, oh, no. This is gonna like yeah. this is gonna be bad. And it's really interesting that there's the the scene that introduces him, kind of makes it you know turns him into sort of a like a you know a, a I guess an Indian slash Middle Eastern step and fetch it. But the, every other scene on, it's just like no, he's an intelligent guy who speaks English and he's in on the gag for the entire deal. Mm-hmm. He's in on yeah, the which is helpful. And yeah. I I wonder if we have Michael Caine to thank for that because I think he really did fight for Saeed Jaffrey to to have more agency and if you watch him now you can he really is joe you're right he is in on the joke and Mm -hmm. he's and he probably he probably sees the red flags before anybody else does as well which is interesting yeah no. i want to say something about oswald morris real quick who is the cinematographer of this movie who shot six movies with john houston um they did moulin rouge moby dick beat the devil reflections in a golden eye uh, and then uh, Macintosh Man and the Man Who Would Be King. So he has not done the best of John Huston's <laughs> movies. He's he's actually got a pretty good record of doing some some of the not the best. Well, but they're he's all the adventurous. One... Even the bad ones are adventurous, though. They're that... all adventurous. You're right. They're all trying to do something, which is totally true. Like what he and what he does with color and reflections in a golden eye with the whole golden tint. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and Moulin Rouge, right. But the gold of reflections in a golden eye gets reflected in Bond Adjacent Man with a Golden Gun, which Ozzy yeah. Morris also shot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the famous Technicolor story about where they desaturate all the color from Moulin Rouge and the Technicolor guy shows up and and says, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And, and Houston apparently looks at Ozzy Morris and says, Ozzy, how's it look to you? And Ozzy said, looks fine, John. And John turned around to the, the Technicolor guys and says, gentlemen, fuck you both. So... <laughs> But anyway, he, he, he just I was just going to say he, he's also we've also got a Kubrick adjacent, too, because he shot Lolita. And then when we get to Unsworth, Unsworth also worked for Kubrick. But but yeah, it's just he brings a really beautiful, colorful, clean, crisp, just just gorgeous look to this movie. For sure. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful looking but movie. It's not looks lovely. I, it does. It's not crazy. I mean, there's nothing I can think of where I'm just awed by some great moment of cinematography in it it's mm-hmm. perfect for appropriate for the film but not adventurous like the other films we just uh, mentioned it's very much we're going to make a commercial film uh we're going to let the story and the performances do the work and um i think it, I, uh, he does a great job yeah it's very lawrence of arabia it's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's clean and big and deep focus and colorful yeah. and all that stuff yeah yep. the last thing i just want to say is that morris jar who also wrote the music for lawrence of arabia delivers an amazing score and i've listened to this score hundreds of times and it yeah. has it has all sorts of nuance it's 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 a good old-fashioned adventure rousing kind of 19th century sounding score in places and then it is also you know an indian 
Indian influenced music. So he get he gets indigenous musicians, indigenous instruments, and mixes that in with this, you know, with the nineteenth century stuff. And as it's just an extraordinary right. aural tapestry. It's really just a classic old fashioned movie, and we should also mention that it clearly influenced. You know, we we've mentioned Gunga Din. And now we can mention Man Who Would Be King as influences on Spielberg and Lucas mm-hmm. with Temple of Doom. I mean, clearly, I remember the first <laughs> time I saw the ending of this movie, Connery's demise. Uh, I was like, "What?" <laughs> like that I didn't bri- had no idea familiar. it was exactly the same bridge and the exact same. Uh, uh, basically, you know, the chopping of the sides of the bridge. I was like, "Man, I didn't realize how much of a." straight ripoff that was <laughs> even though it's one of the great moments in the indiana jones movies to me it's not a problem did you guys it. see the lost city of z i never have i still no, have not no. watched it um, uh, it's an explorer movie more than it is an adventure movie although it has elements of adventure films in it i was just going to ask the question what's the last sort of 19th century adventure movie that we can think of like working within this same kind of idiom that's not problematic. <laughs> Maybe that's why they can't don't make them anymore. Maybe it's so steeped in imperialism that nobody wants to get well, near them. No, I mean, basically, now you would have to make it a horror movie almost, or not a horror movie, but the colonists would have to get their comeuppance big time, right? Mm-hmm. It would have to be the folly of this kind of venture, which I guess this movie is to a certain extent. It just doesn't. It just doesn't get to that theme in the right way, exactly. But but it's yeah, it's definitely turns to Sierra Madre in that sense. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's the, <laughs> the dream that gets lost through the through the human foibles. Yeah. God, do they they just don't make many movies like Victorian era adventure movies? I'm I'm struggling to think yeah. of one. You'd have to update it, I guess. I've always thought about. I'm surprised nobody did this movie like with two soldiers in Afghanistan or something contemporary. You know, yeah, I don't know how you do that. Like post, I guess the Five Bloods was kind of trying to do a. Well, that was more. Yeah. That was definitely Treasure Sierra Madre. Yeah. yeah, it's modernized, um, but Three Kings on some levels the closest I can think of to. Yeah, you know, Which Men is, on an Adventure in in the Middle East. But that's all about thievery. Those are the heist movies, where you know, this is thievery. A, yeah, it is, but it's a th- thievery of of a culture you know it's like yeah. beyond simply stealing some gold uh yeah it's... yeah but there is a sort of you know going through the desert and being immersed immersed among the people um and as i remember it's been a while since i've seen three kings but like three kings does have it like oh wait we're in the wrong <laughs> over yeah. immediate from the get-go like the first shot of that movie is Wahlberg shooting a uh soldier after they weren't supposed to be shooting mm-hmm. people you know it's like immediately we're already con- confused and wrong about everything right from the yeah. get-go in this movie and we're never gonna we're never really gonna straighten that out um i mean they they come to learn i mean i think they come to learn things it's been a while since i've seen three kings now that i think about it i watched it a lot like 20 years ago but <laughs> um which is that how old that movie that movie can drink now yeah it's crazy well, shall we move on to the next one yeah, so Joe, what did you uh, what do you bring into this conversation today? Uh, John Borman's 1974 follow-up to Deliverance, <laughs> Zardos. <laughs> The gun is good. 
pin him in the stone head? I don't know. It is the only path and passage into the vortex. You will show me how you come to be here. Zed, for Zandras, I am an exterminator. Zandras! So, Zardoz, it is, it is 1974, right? So, didn't it come out before? Yeah, I blew it. Yeah, this okay. actually did come out the year before. I was, You're right. I was say, I, they were real close together, I think. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Zardoz. But yes, it is his immediate follow up to what I consider to be outside of like one questionable day for night sequence, a perfect movie <laughs> in Deliverance. Yeah, that's the only. <laughs> the, the, and Burt Reynolds was going to be in Zardoz. Oh, see now, I got t- sick and dropped out. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. First of all, I don't know if you know about and dropped out. <laughs> He got ah, sick quotes. after reading the script. Um, I don't know if you know this, Mitch, but Joe is a massive Burt Reynolds freak. I think. That I, I don't know if that's how I phrase it. No, but. perhaps the world's leading expert in uh, Burt Reynolds. No, I. You know what? As soon as you say that, I think I think I might like Sardoz better if it would have been Burt Reynolds. The, I think maybe his. I, and, and we can get to that. I think you guys should talk about Zardoz before I do. First of all, uh, let me just say this. Can you imagine the pitch meeting? There couldn't have been one, right? <laughs> okay, what so was... this is a giant floating head, and I got Sean Connery in a loincloth. This is what John Borman sounds like, naturally. Yeah, he sounds uh, like... Exactly. <laughs> I think in John Borman's pitch meeting was, I made Deliverance, now I'm going to go do whatever I want. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And yeah. there couldn't have been much detail given to a studio head. I mean, we were right in the heart of that period where yes. studio heads were giving money to people to do whatever they want, so lucky for John Borman and not so lucky for... Well, it was one point Not so lucky for the studio. Dollars. Either ultimately, it, was, no. it, it didn't cost the studio anything. A million yeah, it, and a it, half is nothing. Yeah, true. It's Fox. They'd made Planet of the Apes. They thought, oh, we got this middle range science fiction market cornered. Sure, go make your Sardos the animated movie. series. We'll get <laughs> we'll get a TV show out of this. That's well, the animated series. I mean, the tagline on the poster is also one of my favorite. I get it, but that's a weird tagline between 1984 and 2001. Is Zardos. <laughs> so, 1993? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's funny, you mentioned the poster. Uh, Mitch has that poster, right? Is that the poster you have? Or yeah, you but have... it doesn't have that on it. It doesn't have that catchphrase. It's so... got the, in the land of eternal life, he brings the gift of death or something like <laughs> that. Okay. But, yeah. So, Mitch has that poster up in a spot in his office. And next to spot. it, a prominent <laughs> spot next to the poster for Day of the Dolphin. I've always, nice. I always thought that was nice. such an appropriate pairing of posters. Yeah, oh, they're seen, great posters. I've never yeah. seen Day of the Dolphin. Kino oh. put it out on Blu-ray. How How is it? Is it worth my uh, Please watch Day of the Dolphin. Yes, it's okay. worth your time. Totally. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I Again, I saw it around the same time as I saw Zardoz. So what do I know? I was a 13-year-old boy and I was happy as I could be. And now as an adult, <laughs> I look back on it and go, holy smokes, I can't believe they did this. <laughs> Well, it, it's a, it's almost as much of a what the fuck movie as Zardoz. Oh, in no, some ways. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but 
you know, well, made, you by, guys... made by an auteur who thought he could do anything coming <laughs> off of a big hit, right? Except no, he except no. Nichols is coming off of Catch Twenty Two, where he actually felt extremely like I, I don't he was know what off a... carnal knowledge. Oh right, okay. This that was after carnal knowledge, but he yeah. he didn't think he could conquer the world because Catch Twenty Two was when he realized he couldn't conquer the world. Like yeah, and then he gets surprised. When he he, made that's the one knowledge, that he got. His, like mm-hmm. everybody goes, this movie's amazing, and he made this tiny little thing, and it's incredible. So then he probably thought, oh, I'm 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 back. No, Day of the Dolphin. To get a sidetrack for just a moment, Day of the Dolphin was more. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Somebody brought this along, and they got too far down the road to stop. Is <laughs> what I understand. Right, because uh, Polanski they, was going to do it. Like, yeah, Polanski was going to do it, and he and Nichols kind of picked it up. Yeah. As a, I'm trying to remember, he was sort of as a favor of sorts. He was trying to figure out what he wanted to do, and he got offered The Exorcist, and he passed on The Exorcist, and then he was just like, "Yeah, I'll do, the, I'll do this thing that Polanski started doing," and uh, and they started writing it, and they didn't know it, and they cast. I just, I, I'll never get over the casting of Day of the Dolphin, George C. Scott. It's just wrong. It's not, not the right person. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna love it, Joe. You're, you're gonna yeah, love it. Yeah. Anyway, see, we gotta get back to Did you see Zardoz when it first came out? No, I was uh, probably not alive. It's I was born oh. in '74. So oh, look at you, 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 you kids. Okay, I was 13. Uh, it was my first R-rated movie. Wow, the perfect oh, wow. 13-year-old R-rated movie. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say you get a lot of R-rated in that movie. I sure did, <laughs> Joe. What was your first R-rated movie in the theater? Do you remember? Um, my father took me to inappropriate movies all the time, so I oh, don't okay. specifically. Like, so I saw no the verdict deal. when I was seven, or half the verdict, because I think that was just too slow for a seven-year-old me. Right. It wasn't Zardoz, I'll tell yeah. you that. <laughs> I was going to say, RoboCop 2 was mine, so batshit R-rated movies are a good way to start your R-rated movie career. Mm. But for those kids like you, I know people, like my friend Patrick saw the platoon at age six, you know. It's like, it's just, no, it's not even really a subject to people like you guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, and at age six, again, it's sort of, there's something about 13, yeah. It's the perfect time to sort of cross that threshold mm-hmm. into For a sure. different kind of aesthetic. Yeah. And you're, you know, you you kind of get want to get out from your parents' thumb at that age too. So there's a difference between sneaking in slash not having a carter at a movie theater and seeing like an R-rated, a hard R-rated film when you're 13, 14 years old. Then there is almost seeing it with your parents where like you feel uncomfortable because your mom is sitting next to you while Charlotte Rampling's undressing. Uh, Charlotte Rampling's Thankfully, undressing. my mom never <laughs> went to these R-rated pictures with my dad, and my dad mm-hmm. would take me. God bless him. Yeah. And oh, okay. so really? it was okay. it was a little better. Um, and and I think that he probably thought that Zardoz was the weirdest damn thing he'd ever seen. But there was lots of visual pleasures to be had. Oh yes, that he he would have appreciated. So, you know, it's funny. It's it's almost it's kind of indicative of the eras that, you know, seeing RoboCop 2, I think it was 1990 brutal. Just the what made it pushed it to the limit was just brutal, brutal violence mm-hmm. where with Zardoz, it's definitely like titillation. It's like lots and lots of nudity. And that's like nudity is more 70s and the violence is the more 90s or late mm-hmm. 80s. And, it, and it's funny because now there's nothing, right? What what do you what does the R-rated movie now mean to anyone? Smoking. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, they're they're doing things that are like pre, uh, you know, canceled culture or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That's not really the word for it. But no more smoking in movies. No more this. No more that. So maybe kids get something out of that. I don't know what else there would be left for them. Well, I feel that most R-rated movies now, you know, you have your like other than like kind of dump month horror films. It's sort of, 
every you know it's R-rated means it's prestige and often means it's a medicine movie by which I mean like what want to see this movie that's going to make you depressed like you know Schindler's List would be like a medicine movie right uh what yeah. was the uh, precious but, is that the name of the movie yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah like that would be a medicine like hard r um on the other hand there is this thing with like 70s films where you're so like oh this looks like a fun adventure man how many rapes are in this movie oh my yeah. god it's insane yeah. how many there will be yeah. in in the occasion like in 70s films and and you know i think hbo with their television uh has probably kind of killed the r-rated movie right because there's nothing you don't get at home now First run, no limitations to who can watch it. Well, Joe, tell me about the first time you saw Zardoz. Um, You know, I heard about it for years. I think the first time I saw it was probably about 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Um, Yeah, like uh, Nick the DVD from uh, the bookstore I was working at. Because, again, all I really knew about it was Sean Connery in a loincloth and a big rock head. And, yeah, and I saw it... um, I think late at night, you know, let's say around 2005, and I uh, did not know what to make of it, quite frankly. <laughs> and then I watched it maybe a couple of days later, fully awake, and I'm like, oh man, this is weird. And it's also The Matrix. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, and Matrix Third being around is at the, the Matrix. Time. Well, true. I mean, the whole thing, you know, uh, a peon realizes that his, uh, you know, belief system in life is a lie and goes into a place called the Vortex, where mm. it turns out he is, you know, basically a god. Yeah. 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 That's true. Right. I never actually made that connection. I have a hard time making connections with Zardoz. <laughs> <Anything>. <laughs> And, and that's where, you know, where I come in with Zardoz is I it, it's one of those movies where you could academically explain to me what it's uh, what meaning it has, what um, Borman's trying to do. And I'll say, fine, but I can't connect to this movie while I'm watching it. I just can't. It's just impenetrable to me. It's it's like repellent to me. I hate to use that <laughs> deep, that, that strong a language, but it looks I love the floating head. The, there's mm-hmm. visual elements that I, appeal to me. The floating head is beautiful uh, across the misty, you know, Irish. Yeah. Uh, I assume it's Ireland. Uh, the a lot of the effects with the crystal and the split, you know, mirrored images. All that stuff is like right up my alley visually. But the costuming is just I can't take it seriously. I can't take anything seriously. The behavior of the people. I know there's a satirical bent to it that they're supposed to be fanatical religious and i was i was raised around people that raised their hands and closed their <laughs> eyes and shook them around i can't take this seriously and and as the story progresses it feels random to me every time i'm like what, why did he just put a leaf in his mouth what are you making this up as you go it has that <laughs> feeling to me of of like kids on a playground going and then he did this and then he does that and i just can never quite connect with it and i'm not this isn't an objective criticism this is me i can't i can't enter into this movie so whatever it's about connery, even just like focusing on connery's face because for me that's the key to this movie is <laughs> i can't connery. get past his mustache it's like things like oh, that it's man. like he is the- so completely in the moment every step of the way he is so he is so experiencing uh, you can just see the wheels turning in his head all through this movie i I've, i don't i don't know that he ever I can't think of a more committed performance, especially how physical it is. Like he has, you know, he says less than he says in a lot of his movies, especially the later movies. He became pretty talky, mm-hmm. but 
I'm I'm just kind of fascinated by his journey through this whole thing. And I believe you, Mitch. I believe you see that. <laughs> there is, a, but Mitch, for me, is. he might as well be Ronald, dressed up like Ronald McDonald. I can't. Whatever he's doing underneath all that, I, it's a costuming problem. It's an aesthetic problem for me, and I just can't enter into it because of those things. It's just so dated, and that costume is. There's a reason why it's a meme. It's stupid. It's terrible. It's <laughs> ugly. I mean, I don't know if anyone could argue for that costume outside of ironic. It's funny. And so for me, I can't penetrate the performance because of that. You know, John, to your point, I will say, watching it the other day, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, Sean, you knew you were going to be basically naked for the entire film. You could have gone to the gym. I'm not saying you <laughs> hey, had he was to. 70, but he you was in good have. 70s shape. Come on. <laughs> He, that was not that good. Um, <laughs> he was coming right off of Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah, he Diamonds Are Forever. He was living kind of high at that yeah. point, and I think sure. you can see a little bit. And again, if you compare uh, You Only Live Twice to Diamonds Are Forever, like that, what, three years? That's 40 pounds. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Mitch, to your point with the wheels turning, one of the things I love about this film, like I have a theory about Sean Connery, and that theory is he's kind of stupid. Um, okay. And there's something about this film that like manages to play... Both the fact that he might be, that I believe he's kind of stupid with him also being, with him playing somebody who's smart. He's nobody, he's no idea what's going around in the world. Everything, he almost has a feral reaction to every civilized thing he sees. Um, and yet he's able to like, you know, unlock the riddles of the Zardos universe. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's interesting because he, he really leans into the characters who kind of aren't as smart as they think they are mm -hmm. for a lot of this middle part of his career. And then later in his career, when he becomes the, the old dog who has all the tricks, basically starting with the Untouchables and Highlander, he becomes a little less interesting because in this middle period, what Zardoz and Man Would Be King and Robin and Marion. Meteor. <laughs> Meteor. <laughs> so there's the dumb part. <laughs> but he's not playing a dumb character in, Mete in Meteor. No, he's like no, the head astrophysicist. Yeah, and there's <laughs> no shadings of him not quite being, you know, in o of him being in over his head. And I think that, so I, I hear what you're saying. It, John Borman says on the commentary that he, he remarks that Connery has this amazing memory, uh, which is one thing he talks about. But then he said, he asked Connery why he never did an accent. Why he didn't do an accent like in The Untouchables? He's playing an Irishman and he's mm -hmm. doing, he's got a Scottish burr going on. And Connery said something along the lines of, if I didn't talk the way I do, I wouldn't know who I was. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I, it's funny that you say it, Joe, that he's stupid, that your theory is that J Sean Connery's stupid. I know what you're thinking. Would a stupid man be cast in Just Cause? Oh. And, you know, you have a point. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, I'm struggling to remember who it was. I think it was David Niven, maybe, that said that to be a truly great actor, you have to be kind of dumb. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and, and and there's something to that. There's something about, like, being able, if you overthinking being to the detriment of acting. And mm -hmm. uh, so maybe uh, in that sense, maybe Connery is was able to find himself as an actor because maybe he was a little, he, it was easy for him to sort of empty himself of himself, but then well, you know, <laughs> not being able to adjust to an accent. Uh, well, that's interesting. One of my favorite quotes from Connery is, uh, 
the I think it was he was either the press conferences for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or post commentary on it, and it was you know hey why did you choose this role did, like like well I didn't understand it, but I turned down the Matrix because I didn't understand that, and then I turned down Lord of the Rings because I didn't get what that was all about. So I figure I better not turn anything down that I don't understand anymore. Wait, did he pick the <laughs> oh, wrong one? Oh, oh, that's just heartbreaking. That, that was a terrible policy. And that was it, right? Wasn't that the, his last Yeah, that's movie? his basic. I believe it was. Other than he did a voice in a Scottish-made animated film. Like, yeah, that was right. his last like role on screen. Yeah, it I've was never been able to bring myself to watch First Night because I'm so oh. afraid of. Oh, First of Night is that... terrible. Yeah, yeah. Again, what... you know, it's like maybe King Arthur wasn't the right choice. Maybe you really should have been playing Merlin. No. Yeah, I mean, he could. It, it, I, it, it's just. I mean, as somebody who like got his honors degree in Arthurian literature, it's not like, like it's just not good. I, I want to digress just for a second, kind of, since we're talking about John Borman and and that which is impenetrable. And I've always found his film Excalibur to be impenetrable emotionally. Mm. I I can't get inside of anybody in that thing because it is so. Is is just for me? It's too distant. Um, but there's no human connections. But I'm curious what you think of Excalibur as given your Arthurian. I I love Excalibur. I kind of think like if you read a lot of like uh, Arthurian romances from like the 11th, 12th, 13th century, they're insane. It's all beheadings and adultery and dwarves stealing women. It, like it's just nuts. And there's the bawdiness I find to Excalibur, like a ridiculousness, like. Every scene, they're wearing these, these like seventy-five pound plate armor suits that a wouldn't have existed in his, in you know, right? Would theoretically be Arthurian time, but b even if they did exist, you wouldn't want to wear them unless you needed to. Right. Um, and they're having like, sex with them, right? Yeah, they're basically then, having sex with them on. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I love like uh, 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 Mordred's armor, the gold with the you know with the kind of almost looks Alexa- Alexander, yeah, yeah, Alexander like, the Great, uh, you know, yeah. Helmet, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I find it to be like an absolute hoot. I think it also helps that A, I saw it in the theater and B, HBO loved playing Excalibur throughout like, was, the 80s. I was just going to say, my number one reason for loving Excalibur is it was on HBO all the time. Yeah. When yeah. I was like eight years old. But it's weird. And we, lo- we adored it. Yeah. It's also kind of a weird, like similar to Zardos too, in that for what is for the first three quarters of the film, like I'm pretty, pretty straight ahead. The second you get to the Grail quest and uh, Merlin fight Merlin's semi battle with Morgan Le Fay, it gets super surreal. It gets really like just odd. Like you, yeah. when I was six, I, I and was watching the theater in the Bronx. I was like, "What's happening?" <laughs> yeah, 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 and Zardoz is like that too. Once the once the crystal comes out, oh, yeah, no, it's... the third act of Zardoz is, is just like, wow, I think you just went too far because I was kind of getting all the ideas that you were working, and now eh, it's getting a little dodgy. You're not closing circles; you're opening you're opening crystals, you know, <laughs> with a million different refractions in them at the third act, and yikes! And he knew it, right? Like Borman is aware of what you just said, basically. <laughs> like he. He's yes. aware that it's not a perfect movie, let's just yes. say. If you uh, listen to the commentary, I've listened to some of it. Mitch, you listen yep. to all of it, I think. But isn't it the crystal? Uh, you you played me a little clip 
during that crystal sequence where he's oh, just like, the you go sequence. ahead and fast forward. The mirror, yeah, he actually this. says in the mirror, the mirror house of mirror room sequence that it, he should, he would have cut it if he could do it over again. And if you want to fast forward right now, it's okay. Go ahead. There's something, there's something very special. Yeah, something very special about a director telling you to fast forward through a scene of his movie. Um, yeah. But uh, Charlotte Rampling is great. Yeah. And so is so is Sarah Kesselman, Meg. I mean, Meg and Consuela are both just they're just to die for. Actually, every almost every woman in this movie is to die for. Like it just it just the visual pleasures on that level are are endless as far as I'm concerned. Rampling just has to be on screen. Like she she cuts (laughs) glass like there's just no two ways about it and and still does. Um, So I, I swear, like she's yeah, she's gonna be. The best thing in your movie, it seems like. I'm trying to think of different movies I've seen her in where she wasn't, if she ever wasn't. But she is. She definitely get, keeps keeps me going in this movie. Like, okay, when she shows up, those eyes. I'm uh, there's the aesthetic pleasure for me in the movie where I'm like, wow, something's going on with her always. And you're mm-hmm. talking about the gears working. Well, I can look at her. <laughs> The gears working with Connery and his mustache and ponytail and costume are way different than Rampling, who's <laughs> the costuming with the women is also questionable. But uh, but nevertheless, she's she's working on a different level. And uh, and you again, another one. This, this movie does end on a really I love the last images as ridiculous as it kind of is of him and her holding hands in mm-hmm. the sun and the fade, the aging and all, uh, that I love. It's like little things like that. where like, man, he was working on this level visually that I could really get on board with. And I think maybe he takes some of that two X caliber, which is a movie I can engage with a lot better. And part of the reason why I like Excalibur, but just the aging into skeletons at the <laughs> end is really, it's really cool looking. I was going to say, I, I Mitch, you've listened to the commentary. Maybe you can back this up. Didn't, I mean, from what I understand, Connery hated makeup and therefore hated, you know, and was not thrilled with that scene. And then it turns out that, and it turned out the first time they shot it, like something happened with the film and it just didn't, it didn't develop correctly. So they had to redo it, much to Connery's chagrin. Can anybody back me up on this? Or is this just something I heard on the screen? Yes. And then they shot it the second time. And the camera assistant opened the camera box and exposed <laughs> the film. And they said they had to keep Connery. They had to physically restrain him because he said he was going to kill the guy. And he was he went after him. And so that guy, according to Borman, left the country and went <laughs> to America to work there. And Borman said he ran into him 20 years ago. The guy came up to him and said, you're John Borman. Aren't you? you don't remember who I am. He goes, I'm the guy who... Uh, ruined that film on, on Zardoz and I've been here ever since in America. <laughs> oh my God. So so he had to do it again, yet again they, they had to film it. And it's an in camera thing. So mm-hmm. it was like a really yeah. tedious process. It was like, you know, put some makeup on, come sit down. Okay, go get some more makeup on, come back in, sit down. And Borman says Connery not only doesn't like makeup, he doesn't like to be touched. <laughs> and so he, it's always a really tricky situation with mm-hmm. makeup and hair. And Sean Connery. Yeah, no, it's kind of fun to dissolve shots. It's uh, like Cheney and the Wolfman. Well, almost all the effects are practical. In fact, I think all of them are in Zardoz. They're they built a giant head and figured out how uh to make it fly. Uh (laughs) And they made it. Then they held it by a string and uh, by a crane and suspended it and forced the perspective. And so it's all practical effects, which is another reason that the movie I, I find it to be really interesting. Now, there's a terrible practical effect when Connery tries to step into the pyramid. 
and he puts his hands up above his head and he sort of sinks out of sight in a bit of bad <laughs> pantomime and it's a rough one that moment is is 100% completely laughable the, the castle bubbles on all that when that finally explodes too it's like oh you had me sold on that building until you blew up the bubbles, until you blew it huh? up yeah. and then it looks like a little tiny model this yeah. also marks a really interesting part of um in Jeffrey Unsworth's career as a cinematographer who worked for Pressburger and Powell and did um, Lifetimes of Colonel Blimp and he did um, A Matter of Life and Death, which I know you and I both so love. Amazing. He, um, and when he gets to Cabaret, he starts, 1970, he starts working with this whole idea of color and a wide open aperture and layers of physical filter over the lens to try and, and, create both this kind of soft gauzy feel but also be able to see everything and have really black blacks and so he's doing that with Zardoz and I think it's absolutely fascinating you can see forever the depth of focus is 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 incredibly deep because they're shooting wide open and there's filtration over the lens to one point a bunch of flour gets thrown into the air baking flour and the combination of the backlight, the flower, and it, it makes everything go completely white right there in, in front of your eyes. It just blasts the, the, mm -hmm. the light onto the emulsion and it just flares it, you know, and then it, then it dissipates as the, as the flower comes out of the air. It, it's a visually one of the, I think, one of Unsworth's most interesting movies. Yeah, yeah he, it, he, it's visual. It's, there are things in that, like, just the Sean Connery pointing a gun directly at the camera looks great. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and granted, he's done it six or seven times before, but but <laughs> with the close up, it looked really nice. Like the Zardos had vomiting guns. Yeah, it's... I was just going to say those exact words, Joe. Vomiting guns. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't know how they did it. I don't know whether they just. I guess they must have just catapulted them out of the mm -hmm. mouth and shot it in slow motion. But holy smokes, it's really amazing. Yeah, it looks great. And there's something. There's a pantomime quality to Connery's performance, particularly in the first half of the film, that works really well and is really in, unlike most of his other work. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it has its problems. I can understand why it wasn't the raving success that I'm sure Borman thought it would be. But <laughs> it's really an interesting movie. That cannot be denied. It, for, it gets points just for existing. Yeah, and, and it's great to listen to as well. David Munro, who did the score, who also did work on The Devils, those were his two films, you know, was this extraordinary force in the late 60s, early 70s, discovering all sorts of Renaissance instrumentation mm -hmm. and doing arrangements that were try trying to approximate how things really would have sounded in, in the Renaissance. And he was just an amazing force, and he only did two movies, and then he committed suicide, and it was a real loss because he was... He was amazing, and the and the way this movie sounds with both the use of Beethoven and also what Monroe comes up with 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 voice stuff is really incredible. I can say honestly, you know, I've seen Zardoz twice, and talking about it with you guys is is way more enjoyable <laughs> to me than watching the movie, and that and that's fine. I mean, I'm not saying that to insult the movie. I'm saying there are those movies, and I think we've talked about them before. You're like saying Breathless. that to compliment us. Yeah. <laughs> and that too, why not? Um, Breathless is one of those movies. There's certain movies that I understand their uh, their place in, in the um, dialogue of cinema history, and I'd rather just have the dialogue than actually watch the movie, <laughs> and this is one of those, because it is an interesting, I mean, God, a fascinating moment 
when I first saw Connery in that costume, I said, there's no way he agreed. How did Connery agree to wear that? You know, it's one of those things like, what happened here that made Connery make a decision to be in a movie like this? It's fascinating in that sense. He was sense more upset that, about having to wear a bridal gown, apparently, because there's a <laughs> Connery drag moment, and that's uh, he's disguised in a in a bride's outfit, and he didn't want to wear the dress. Hmm. Well, at least the other costume has bullets bullets around it, you know. Thought maybe it was some he saw this kind of macho or something. <laughs> Not really. Sorry, those knee, those thigh high boots really kind of kill that for you there, buddy. But <laughs> but as um, soon as he anyway. changes into the other costume, that's when the movie for me starts to. So just watch for the not the bride costume, but his his uh, he's With got a shoulders kind of shoulder padded uh, suede leather number mm-hmm. that isn't quite as good as the diaper, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we can move on. Any other thoughts? No, I think we probably uh, killed Zardoz here. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I guess we can move on to the movie that I'm bringing to the conversation, which is um, Michael Crichton's 1978 uh, either the Great Train Robbery or the first Great Train Robbery, depending on uh, where, what country you're from. Sir, can you possibly explain why you went to such incredible lengths to commit this astounding crime? I wanted the money. <laughs> the Great Train Robbery, starring Sean Connery, the greatest scoundrel hero who ever lived. Do you ever tell anyone the truth? The truth? Whoever loved. Whoever lied. Come, come, my dear fellow, are we not friends? More than that, Henry. Much more. Who do all those men think you are? They think I'm Edward Pierce, a sharp businessman. Don't try. Mr. Sims is it? That's right. Would you try one of these, Mr. Pierce? Uh, with gratitude. Are you John Sims? Edward Pierce, my dear fellow! We'll have a look at this mysterious Mr. Sims. It takes a bold man with a brilliant plan to take what has never been taken before. Such skill. It is so rare these days. Depends on the skill of the workman, of course. And he must have the proper tools. How can I be of service to you? Find me a dead cat. The Great Train Robbery. Robbery indeed. The very idea. Two tub safes, four keys, separately guarded. Two are locked away by the station manager. One is in the hands of our president, Mr. Edgar Trent, whom you all know to be utterly reliable. No respectable gentleman is that respectable. I don't know where Mr. Trent keeps his key, but I know of the fourth. Such a strong man. But I am myself entrusted with guarding it. What is this? Uh, a key, but I'm afraid... Oh, there must be nothing. So you see, gentlemen, the Crimean gold shipments and all other transactions of the bank are entirely safe. Thank God for that. The Great Train Robbery. It takes genius. It takes charm. It takes timing. It takes nerve. It takes courage. It takes sacrifice. Oh, dear, my dear, my dear. Ah! What do you take me for? And it takes the world by surprise. Sean Connery. What could go wrong? Donald Sutherland. Leslie Andow. The Great Train Robbery. The all-time perfect crime. 
This is a movie that's very new to me. I'm bringing this to the conversation, not having a long history with it. I actually purchased it blind off of Kino Lorber, uh, Kino Lorber sale. Mm-hmm. Thought, hey, Mitch and I are doing a Sean Connery uh, series uh, with their 007 by 7. I should watch as many Sean Connery movies as I can. And this one looks like a lot of fun. And I bought it and watched it. And I got to say, the first time I watched it, wasn't that into it. I really wasn't. I, I, I found it fascinating, interesting, but a little bit dull. And I found Donald Sutherland to be extremely obnoxious. And uh, then it really picks up in the second, in the third act, really. Once the, the heist itself happens, it really picks up. Well, then I watched it again for this show and found it far more enjoyable from beginning to end than the prior uh, time watching it. But Mitch, you have a, when did you first see this movie? Did you see this one in the theater? I did. I saw it in the theater. Yeah. yeah. How'd you I feel was about on a it? Date. Then? I was in a good mood. <laughs> uh, no, I loved it. I loved Jerry Goldsmith's score. Yeah. I I liked the cinematography. I liked all of the anthropological details about the culture. And mm-hmm. Crichton was an anthropologist before he was a doctor, before he was a writer, before he was a director. And a novelist, and so it's based on his source material. You know, the other, you know, he wrote another historical thing called Eaters of the Dead, which was made into the terrible movie The Thirteenth Warrior, or not a very good movie, The Thirteenth Warrior. I remember that movie being like slow as molasses. Yeah, lots of production disasters. They literally were pulling the production bond company was pulling pages out of the script because they went over budget. Um, But all that being said, the book of Eaters of the Dead is great, and the book of the Great Train Robbery is 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 really good as well now if if i if i'm not mistaken the book came from a suggestion from a producer though to make a movie so i think that's how Crichton worked uh no, you, i didn't you, know that yeah so he was i think he had just made westworld and a producer said trains hey how about trains like it was literally <laughs> that good old-fashioned hollywood hey here's one here's one word make a movie out of it and he was and, and Crichton said trains in the 70s it's such an archaic idea i'm not interested in that at all until uh he learned about this robbery that happened now it's not this isn't based on a true story exactly he claimed it was based on the transcripts of a trial concerning a train robbery that occurred in the victoria era england um which he was lying about that these trains the, the <laughs> then found out there were some. He said it was a real shocking. Somebody said, yeah, here they are. Like He never actually had seen them. He thought he just made that up to say, oh, I based it on this transcription from his trial. Um, but, but the robbery itself and this concept, he said the concept of this urban, well, in the 70s, mugging in New York City, for instance, had become such a, a plague. And um, he got very anthropologically interested in it and found out that the people that were mugging people weren't the people that you thought they were. They were actually professional muggers, people that actually, you know, nine times out of 10, they weren't junkies. Mm -hmm. They were people that knew how to do this and planned it out and, and um, would actually be pulling off these mini heists by mugging people. And he saw it as an interesting urban anthropological subject and then tied it into the train robbery. And that's where his interest came from. Then he went and wrote an awful about it. I don't know if you really thought, I'll write a novel about it, then make a movie about it exactly, but it seemed to be kind of his method. <laughs> so he wrote the novel, then he made the movie. And um, interesting, like he's such a fascinating character, Crichton, with his 
clearly a Renaissance man, as Mitch has mentioned, all these things mm-hmm. that he was uh, very adept at, and that he would work from an anthropological standpoint to make a movie like this. And you see it, like you said, you see it on the screen. Like these ideas about, you know, well, the sequence where the security on the train, on the on the caboose, the whatever, where the gold is being held, adjusts on them and they have no time to change. And, and him coming up with this whole idea of like, having a dead body in a coffin and that's his way into the train, you know, that that's all so of its time and it would have to have come from research to even understand how that would work. Uh, I find it fascinating film in that sense and how the stakes, he raises the stakes in the, in, in what looks like it's through research. He finds ways to raise the stakes, not just through movie tropes. If you and know I think I mean. it works pretty well as a heist movie in terms of the team of thieves figuring this thing out and how they got to get the one guy out of jail. And mm-hmm. then, you know, Leslie Ann Down is really good and she gets to play lots of different colors, lots mm-hmm. of different characters, which I'm sure for her that was probably the greatest job of her entire career just because she got to do all these different accents and all these uh, different personas as the, you know, as the girl in the, in the gang. And what a knockout. gorgeous absolutely gorgeous the camera loves her yeah and and, you know he talked about too Crichton said that um trying to work around victorian era mores and 70s era sexuality in film was an interesting balancing act that he had to strike with uh, connery and and down to where he said well i'm not trying to make a documentary about sex in the victorian era (laughs) but i also don't want it to be uh, anachronistic and I think he does a really good job with that, too. Their relationship has a little fire in it, but it also has this professional distance and this sort of uh, uh, propriety to it where they, they understand the time that they're in, but there's still excitement between them that yeah. the audience can can feel. Yeah, it's great. And the, and the fact that he sort of throws her under the bus or under the train uh, towards the towards the end and, and forces her to spend a time in this compartment with the lech of the movie God, that guy. Uh, the, the, the look that she shoots him in the moment that he says oh why don't you go sit with him I mean, it's really nice it's a great mm-hmm. moment is tell me this this is the one part of the movie that always kind of makes me go huh when he's trying to seduce her on the train the lech guy and he says um they call it the 50 mile an hour club <laughs> that's the part where i'm like that's a little <laughs> anachronistic total, yeah something tells me yeah but it's yeah. also kind of works because we're well into the movie where you can get away with something like that and it's funny and it's funny yeah. that he says that it's like this is just the kind of guy you might meet on a plane in 1978 mm-hmm. you know that would <laughs> be saying gets, this to the stewardess or something you know you get a lot of mileage out of that guy the yeah. the lecherous dude is he gets a lot of audience pleasure for sure. Yeah. I also like the guy who plays Trent, um, Alan Webb. He was in the Duelists. He was the mm-hmm. he was the old uncle who made the boots for Keith Carradine, and he he's really great too. And there's a scene where he puts his he has terriers, rat terriers, and he fights them. And there's a scene between Connery and and him at the end, or after the fight has happened, and the dog's been all bitten up by the rats and mm-hmm. it's a real poignant moment with this guy and he really loves his dog and it's pretty funny because connery leans over and sort of pets the dog gently and i was thinking gosh that is one of the few times that i've ever seen sean connery pet a dog yeah. <laughs> he's not a real pet the dog kind of he's not guy. a pet the dog yeah. guy no. well he doesn't like to be touched so he probably doesn't like to touch things i probably assumes dogs be. don't like to be too yeah. <laughs> um 
sadly, sadly, they really shot that rat fighting scene mm-hmm. and listening to the commentary, Crichton trying to kind of talk himself into being okay with it is really painful. Oh, I want to borrow your disc and listen yeah. to that commentary. I've never heard that before. I bet it's really interesting. He didn't know. Was it like, like well, okay, it so, is a rat terrier. I mean, that's yeah, what exactly. they're bred to do. <laughs> I don't know how he didn't have more control over the situation as the director of the movie, to be honest. So I'm not sure what to believe. But yeah, he's, right. he, he claimed that he didn't know until very close to the day that they were actually going to shoot with real rats. And then he said, oh, I was of two minds, but I really didn't want to hurt any animals. But at the same time, I was just so fascinated to see uh, this really uh, uh, this really happen, this kind of fighting, which is illegal. So there's the anthropological side of him. I believe he did want to see it. I believe that's why it happened. If he was really that appalled by it, he would have called it off and yeah. said, come up with something else. Right. And then in the end, he tried to say, well, the brats were really big and it was just hard to have sympathy for something. <laughs> I'm like, dude, stop. Stop now. <laughs> You're digging yourself a hole. But I guess they did a bunch of illegal stuff with animals on that set because not only was that whole thing illegal and the um, um, their version of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the, Animal right, the people that monitor animals in films. Yeah, the they? the Royal RSPCA. The Royal. Yeah, they came late to the scene, so they were able to get all their shots before those they came in. But also, the dog was carried between England and Ireland multiple times without quarantine, and he said he didn't know oh that. Gosh. They actually smuggled the little dog back and forth for all these different scenes. And I love the fact that there are stuffed dogs on the walls of that club. I don't know if you guys noticed that. I noticed yeah. one, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Isn't that wild? He's like, you're going <laughs> to stuff and mount your dog. He was such a good fighter. Yeah. Well, people still stuff their dogs, you know, uh, yeah. from time to yeah. time. It's a little bit uh, kooky, if you ask All me. All those but... dog heads in Roma on the wall. That was so bizarre. Ugh, yeah. That movie. Well, <laughs> this is a direction I didn't expect to go. Um but, you know, the thing about Great Train Robbery to me, really, it really, it's one of those movies that's solid all the way through. But what it really comes down to is a big, memorable action sequence, right? And the fact that Connery got on top of that train going upwards of 35 miles an hour and pulled off his own stunts all the way through. And, and that's remarkable. It's kind of proto Tom Cruise Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, one of the joys of the Mission Impossible series now is. What the hell is Cruz going to do this time? Yeah. You know, and and this was very dangerous. It's kind mm-hmm. of amazing to me that Connery did all this and and all the things that they had to go through to make sure he was safe. Apparently, those bridges. There's absolutely no regulatory committee for the bridges in Ireland, so none of them were standardized. <laughs> it was like, oh wow, they were all different heights as they went under them, so they couldn't say, okay, you're always going to be fine as long as you're not at this point. They had to be like, okay, at this bridge, you're going to have to be this distance. And even at one point, he does a little acting move where he's rubbing his neck in uh-huh. a shot yeah, as they're over. about to go under. And that was done in order to measure. So, okay, if, as long as I'm doing that and my elbow is touching the top of the roof, I know exactly how high my head is. And oh, it's little wow. tricks like that to, to keep him safe up there. Um, it's fascinating to watch. You watch it and I keep looking and looking. I'm thinking there's got to be a double in here somewhere. But that's that's all Connery. It's amazing. And he was forty eight. He was yeah. I mean, he's he was pushing fifty when he when he did that stuff. So Pretty, what's there is any one moment. What's that? So what's what? stopping any of us? Yeah, exactly. What's yeah, stops? Exactly. What's stopping you from getting on top of a speeding train that's and walking right. across it? But yeah, the whole heist thing is very, it's very exciting. Uh, the you know 
not really understanding what the plan is all the way through. You know, you get the, all this prep. I love heist prep. Heist mm-hmm. prep is always fun to watch in movies. Southern, <laughs> Sutherland doing the whole stairs, 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 and yeah. running and all that stuff's pretty fun. Uh, but then not knowing every element of the heist, you know, you got to withhold something right from the audience so that we get a nice surprise. And then you got to surprise the characters. Right. At something some has point. to go wrong too. Yeah. Something has to go wrong. So in this case, it's soot. How did he not think he thought he immediately came up with the dead cat and the dead guy in the coffin scheme, but he didn't think about soot for some reason. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of like, man, how did you not think of that one? But it also didn't matter in the end. It didn't really matter anyway, because that damn lecherous bastard. So what do you think? Sutherland, a little hammy, maybe very, very hammy, obnoxious to me in this movie. Kind of yeah. kind of sucks the life out of some of the scenes and and. Keeps me from Dodgy thinking. This is like a, too. The accent goes yeah, all. Over I don't the even place. know if he's trying. Yeah, I mean, just take a page out of Connery's book and don't do one. How about that? You're just the American. You're the American pickpocket. You know, yeah. whatever. Um, he makes so, Canadian. Like, <laughs> Canadian. Sorry, sorry. He makes so many weird choices. If you look at like the '70s, where there are like these subtle, you know, these subtle like earnest performances and something like Clute, and then Oddball in uh, you know Kelly's Heroes. The hippie in World War and II. Bellini's Casanova. Yeah, I mean, like, then, I mean really, you know, I'm only talking about high-end films like Kelly's Heroes. I don't, Fellini, okay, I, you know, yeah. come on, Fellini, who? Yeah, yeah, like M- M- this isn't a time. This isn't a Times <laughs> Square grindhouse. Let's like, <laughs> let's try to keep it classy. <laughs> I will say, you know, Mitch and I kind of discussed this, like Sutherland's career, a little bit. And that, uh, you know, to me, it's kind of ends at ordinary people. Like he's obviously in a, about 3,000 more movies after 1980, yeah. but he's so good in ordinary people. Oh, and fantastic in that. He's exactly what my dad, he, he, I always think he's exactly what my dad would be in that situation. Like everything he's doing is what my dad would do. Trying to trying to fix things, but not quite understanding sometimes. You know, uh, no offense to my dad, but it's like always got to fix things, but not always understanding what's really going on under the surface mm-hmm. of the people involved. And I just think, man, he captures that dad persona so well in ordinary people, and it's so heartbreaking. You know, he's trying his best. I think it's amazing that it, you know it's Redford. You got to give it up to Redford. He got performances out of. Hammy Sutherland, he got this incredible performance and out of Mary Tyler Moore, who had never really been in movies, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. been, done that kind of acting. you got to give it up for Redford for Ordinary People. But Sutherland in this, yeah, I, I would like to kind of see somebody else maybe. There's plenty of British actors that could have done that role. I, it's a hindsight thing, but I kind of want to see somebody else in this movie. I think it could be an all-time classic. I'm not, <laughs> not trying to be so hard on Donald Sutherland, but he just kind of sucks the life out of the movie from time to time. Yeah, I'm seeing like a... Uh... Ian McShane would be wonderful. In that oh, role. He would have like been great. Kind he, of low in criminal with aspirations. You know, he's yeah. cl- he's a little closer physically to the guy who breaks out of jail. The king. What do they call yeah. him? King. He's a little closer to that guy physically. But, but they he had to been have another star, and yeah. I'm sure that Dino De Laurentiis had his list, and that was that. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, they needed somebody who was big in America. I mean. It wasn't a British. It was made to sell tickets in America. I'm sure. Uh, so yeah. So it's yeah. Dale, as soon as you get Dino Dale Orensis into the conversation, you start going, yeah. The decisions weren't artistic. Always. You never know. <laughs> yeah, with Dino, you know, yeah. and they're not artistic, and sometimes they're not even business. Sometimes they're just a strange whim that he has. Yeah. Somebody that mm-hmm. he has decided he wants in a movie, and that's yeah. that. 
And I don't know how much Dino really had to do with production once Crichton took over. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be interested in in learning about that. Crichton, well, first, first they shot it mostly in England and Ireland. Ireland, yeah. So I don't know if De Laurentiis is really how in the middle of all that he's going to be uh, from... Was he? He was in L.A. by then, right? No, he would have been in New York He's, still. Oh, in New York. Yeah, and um, and Crichton says Connery had a almost a producer role in this movie, and so in, that's to, probably very positively, not yeah. not officially, right? But in a very positive way, he had a lot of great ideas uh, for the movie. And well, he worked with Crichton again. Like, I mean, there was a relationship there, and Crichton does say he modeled um, Monroe in Congo after Connery and and was hoping that Connery was going to play that role instead of Ernie Hudson. <laughs> but then Congo came after Medicine Man, right? So maybe Connery didn't want to go into that whole uh, in the jungle. In the jungle again, that could yeah. be. Um, and yeah. then Rising Sun, the character's name is John Connor, and again, it was based on mm-hmm. Connery. Oh, Rising Sun. Crichton wrote that book. So Rising there was, Sun, there was definitely we'll a discussing there. We'll be discussing Connery Classics number five or so. (laughs) We'll get to Rising Sun. (laughs) Um, Well, I don't know. Does anybody have anything else to say about any of these movies? At this point, I feel like I've said my piece. Um, Great Train Robbery. uh, I'm not sure where it's available streaming. It's available to rent streaming from Amazon. It's on Turner right now. It's on Turner right now. but um, So maybe you could catch it if you got the Turner Classic Movies app. Uh, you could catch it. It might show up on H- you. Always look at HBO Max because they have the Turner Classic uh, hub yeah. there, where a lot of these movies show up. So uh, they come and go too. So this one might show up there. Zardoz, Zardoz should be. Wait, no. So Zardoz, Zardoz are, is now owned by Disney. It's now a Disney <laughs> price. So, so good luck to get all of you. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, like get it while you can because well, who I knows? Mean, Disney is releasing it. They're they're releasing a piece of the Star Wars Holiday Special now. They're really opening up the vault, so you no never know. there's no raping and nudity in the Star Wars Holiday Special. Right. Got, but, well, there Zardoz... isn't the version I bought. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so the, I don't the, know where yeah. Zardoz fits into the Disney slash Fox brand. I don't know. They're supposed to, aren't they supposed to have the adult? I mean, for a while there, it was going to be Hulu was going to be the adult, like the R-rated branch of Disney Plus, basically. But now they've got Alien... Now they're, a lot of this stuff is on HBO Max. I don't know how that deal was working because Alien, the, all the Alien movies are on HBO Max right now. Yeah. So all I'm the like, Alien well, movies have been on HBO might be on... for years at this point. So right. So maybe it's just they're 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 finishing out a contract with yeah. the Could Alien be. movies. Could be a so Fox who knows where Zardoz Zardoz, Zardoz might be on HBO Max. I didn't even look. It could. I, I I don't think it was. But who knows? Turner Classic Movies might show Zardoz. They they've been getting a little weird. They showed RoboCop too recently. Just waiting for the devils. Just waiting for the devils to <laughs> the be on TV. Devils. Yeah, the devils. Wait, where is the devil? Movie show the devils. Yeah, I think yeah, but Shutter, I'm thinking about where it's Shutter ran it recently. I oh think. no, Shutter has it. I think Shutter has a long a long term contract with for devils. I was trying to think of what streaming service the devils is on, but. It's. I think it is. Shutter. And it was so on the a, Criterion channel too. I think briefly, maybe they it was. It. Criterion needs to put. I feel like that's got to happen. Yeah. The Devils has got to come out on Criterion. We're way off of our Connery conversation here, but please, Criterion Collection, get the Devils out. We're not the only ones saying it. I see that <laughs> regularly requested from people. So, well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us for this. Great to find a fellow Zardoz lover. 
<laughs> Thank you for having me. And yes, we are a rare breed. Thanks, thanks everyone for uh, tuning in, subscribing to our Patreon page, listening to this episode. And as we're as we speak, we are recording episodes of From Russia with Love uh, for 007 by Seven. So we're not making any promises about a drop date yet, but it shouldn't be too long. I'd say in, look for us in the summer. So uh, uh, that's a little bit of news. I don't know if we've mentioned that on air yet, but there you go. Now we have. So anyway, everybody, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>